Turn it on and rip the knob off. Come on in and get your kicks with episode six of the Wrestling Memory Grenade as part of the WrestleCobia brand. As per usual, I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me as always, the exceptional, the illustrious, the distinguished, Mr. Stephen Ekstack. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for the kind words. I'm happy to be here. We're moving right along here. And Steve, it's it's great to have you here for what should be another fun ride through 1989 in the NWA. Yeah, absolutely. We're starting to pick up the pace here a little bit as far as the action and everything's going. A lot to get to this week. Absolutely. And this week, we'll be tackling another two weeks of NWA TV, complete with behind-the-scenes news and notes for the time period of March 25th through April 2nd. And that does include that show in New Orleans, a.k.a. Clash of the Champions 6, Raging Cajun, featuring the two-out-of-three fall match between world champion Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair. It's the rematch from Chi-Town Rumble. We'll also be tossing in some fun sound bites throughout the show, as always, from various TV episodes. Plus, we have the March edition of the VIP Jobber of the Month and the NWA Top 10 for March 89. Before we do all that, I must give a very special shout out to Jason, Mickey, and the crew over at the Retro Network and the RetroNetwork.com. So much going on over there with tons of new articles, podcasts, and playlists available for your entertainment. I actually just finished uh, recording a couple of fun retro tournament style podcasts over at the Retro Network where we discussed and voted on some fun topics. One of them being, what was the greatest 80s cartoon of all time? Some interesting discussion there. And those podcasts should be available soon on the Retro Network. I had a lot of fun recording those shows and I can say firsthand that there's some good people over there at TRN, and I really had a lot of fun. You can keep up with Jason and the gang by heading over to Twitter and following the Retro Network at TRN Social. I also want to be sure and mention our sponsors on the Retro Network. First, I want to talk to you about HalloweenCostumes.com. Right now on HalloweenCostumes.com, you can get 20% off any one item in their store by simply putting in the coupon code TRN202020. And I must say, I've been through their site, and they've got everything from couples' costumes to plus-size costumes to even ugly sweaters. Ladies, no matter your interests, no matter your shapes and curves, HalloweenCostumes.com has something for you. And gentlemen, that goes ditto. In fact, if you plan to go out for Halloween, I invite all the guys to purchase themselves something for 20% off, and then go ahead and grab your significant other a couples' costume to match. Or if you plan to stay in that night, maybe hop on over and do yourselves both a favor and purchase that significant other a sexy costume to stay in and have your own little Halloween party. I might suggest the Wonder Woman or Dark Vixen Red Riding Hood costume. That coupon code again is TRN202020 for HalloweenCostumes.com. That's 20% off any one item in their store. Offer ends October 31st, Halloween night, so stock up now. As for our show here at The Grenade, some big news here as well. Our very own Steven Ekstat has shamelessly put together a small trove of wrestling goodies that we'll be giving away free of charge here as part of the podcast in the coming weeks. Did I mention the word free? That's right. In the very near future, we'll begin the Wrestling Memory Grenade free prize giveaways. And all you have to do to secure your chance at being drawn at random to win yourself a prize is follow us on Twitter. That's right. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade, and you automatically enter your chance at being selected for our giveaways. We'll have a lot more on the contest in the next couple of weeks, but right now I can confirm that the first two prizes will feature a Lex Luger autograph from a 1989 promo pick, and we'll also be giving away a certified Arn Anderson autograph on a badass promo pick of Arn. You can actually go to our Twitter right now, at Wrestling Grenade, to check pictures of both of these prizes out. 
And lastly, thanks to everyone out there who continues to subscribe, download, listen, and support the show. Please keep retweeting and tell your friends about us. And Steve, I guess it's time to dive right into the show. We got two big weeks of shows in Clash of the Champions, so uh, away we go. And we're going to dive right into the TV, and I actually thought we had an episode of NWA Pro, but unfortunately, when I went to play the uh, episode, and you noticed this as well, what we got for the March 25th episode of Pro was actually the March 11th episode of Pro, which we've already covered in the last episode. So no episode of Pro for March 25th, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but we don't seem to have it at the moment. So we move right on to NWA Worldwide to kick things off this week, March 25th. We have Lance Russell and Michael Hayes. My note on that is yuck. And, uh, yeah. ring, and you know, the one thing that was great about this show was the ring announcer is back. You know which ring announcer I'm talking about. The one that claimed that the uh, Simone SWAT team were from Simonin and the World U.S. Heavyweight Championship and things like that. So it was nice to see that guy back this week. He didn't make quite as many mistakes, which was unfortunate. I was saddened by that. But he, it was cool to see him back for another episode of Worldwide here. <laughs> <laughs> and we kick off the show with the Junkyard Dog teaming with Ron Simmons, taking on Julio Barrera and Russian Assassin number 2, Jack Victory. The only note I have for this match to start with is that the ring announcer, uh, Mr. Fun, announces Julio Barrera as Julio Barria. And that's that's really the only note I have from this, other than this is the first time we've actually been able to see Ron Simmons in action. Ron Simmons hadn't been on TV since either, I, I believe it was somewhere in December of 1988. So we, we haven't been able to see Ron Simmons until now. He's been MIA from NWA television until now. So it was nice to see Ron back in, with the NWA. Yeah, I agree. It was nice to see him back. Interested to see where he ends up. Michael Hayes on commentary says that the uh, only reason the Junkyard Dog's even relevant right now is because Dog had been teaming with Hayes for the last couple months, and Hayes says he gave Dog a second life. It was interesting seeing Ron Simmons here in this babyface situation because Ron was actually trained by Hiro Matsuda, so it would have been really, it would have been perfect, it seems like, to put Ron Simmons in that position where Butch Reed's at right now, being managed by Hiro Matsuda. But Ron's been out for a bit, and he's back, and I won't nitpick that. But yeah, just cool to see Ron Simmons back, even if he's stuck with the Junkyard Dog here. And, of course, Simmons and Dog go over in that match. It was uh, Simmons with a flying tackle on Julio to get the win in about five minutes. We move on to one of your favorites, Steve, the Iron Sheik over Tony Subra with the camel clutch in about 440. Again, the ring announcer refers to the Iron Sheik as the Arn Sheik. That would be interesting to see Arn Anderson come down in Iron Sheik gear. I would like to maybe have seen that. I don't know. You're the only one. Well, I think it would have got over better than the Iron Sheik. I noticed here in this match that Sheik actually has to grab a chair from ringside. He's so hobbled, he has to use the chair to even get in the ring to start the match. He has no business wrestling in 1989 at all. I mean, he can barely move. It's it's sad to see. Yeah. And he's living off of name and gimmick alone at this point, no doubt about it. Suber was the classic big guy jobber, believable when he gets in a few shots because of his size, but Suber misses a dropkick, takes a Saido suplex, and the camel clutch ends that one pretty fast. We go to Pettacino Nose, Joe Pettacino, another Sting and Lex Luger promo, nothing there. Tag team action with the Varsity Club, Dan Spivey and Dr. Death, led to the ring by Kevin Sullivan, over Mike Thor and Keith Hart in about 5.45. Spivey with a half crab on Keith Hart here. Interesting finish to this match, Steve. Yeah, it was definitely odd, the single leg crab. I know it's the gimmick that the Varsity Club was doing. I thought Keith Hart looked really awesome here as a jobber. He was selling those moves for Spivey really well. Uh, it made it entertaining to watch. It wasn't just a boring squash. Keith was yeah. doing his, looking his ass off. I think, uh, I, I see Keith Hart winning a, a VIP job of the month in the future if he can stay with the company long enough. We got Barry Windham over Joe Cruz in two and a half minutes with the Lariat. Barry Windham, no glove on his hand. He's got, he's got his hand taped up. Still no surgery. The Lariat looked funky here again, like you pointed out before. Barry Windham just looks maybe just too tall for some of these guys that he's hitting the move on. He's just hitting them too high in the air. Windham, you know, another short match because of the, the uh, hand injury here. 
promo with Lance Russell interviewing Sting and Lex Luger. Sting refers to Lance as Lancey Baby, makes a point that he hasn't seen him in quite a while, which is true. I don't know that Sting's seen Lance Russell since Sting debuted in professional wrestling in Memphis with the Warrior. So yeah, it has been quite a while. Another note I had here was, I don't know if Luger's heel turn was already planned at this point. It doesn't seem likely between the flare, the flare feud and the, the Michael Hayes turn on Lex, but Luger's really come out of the rumble with a different presence. Not just a bigger body, but his presence seems different, a more cocky personality. I don't know if that's just me feeding off of that or if that's really what he's exuding here, but Sting keeps wanting to do the wild thing with Ric Flair in the ring, and, and he says this repeatedly during the promo, and it's very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I agree. Luger, he just seems like more, like you said, cocky or confident. He won the big one, so to speak, against Barry Windham, so that put in more confidence in him. Sting says he gets paid to do the wild thing in the ring. I don't know. It's a little weird sounding. Yeah, I don't know. Sting's out there. Yeah, somebody needs to talk to Sting and explain to him what these things mean. We get Butch Reed with Hero Matsun in his corner over Bob Cook with a diving shoulder block in 315. Ric Flair, wrestling Cougar J on TV. He had promised Lance Russell the week before on the episode where Ric Flair was color commentator. He promised Lance Russell he'd get in the ring this week, and he kept his word and went over Cougar J here with a figure four in about four minutes. And just what a presence Ric Flair brings to the ring here. And I know that sounds redundant and silly that, yes, duh, Ric Flair has a presence, but if you just watch this episode or some of his other work here in 1989, just the confidence that he brings to the ring, not just the character, but the man, it puts me in awe sometimes. To know how good he really was. Just something different in the building. As soon as he walks out, goes through his entrance, the whole building is just different. It lasts about as long as he's out there. So this is a four-minute match. He's probably out there about six, seven minutes. That crowd was hype. It just felt different than the rest of the show. I thought this match was really good. I know it's a squash, but I felt like Ric Flair, he was wrestling and showing off some of his ability. Like, I could do this all night. I could toy with this guy. And I think it was like you said, he's going to send a message to Steamboat that he's been working on some things and did it perfect here. I don't know if there's anybody better than Ric Flair, to be honest with you, when it comes to a lot of things. Agreed. The only other note I have for that match is Lance Russell, I don't know if it was a mistake or if they were trying to alter his last name, but the referee here was uh, George Scott's son, Byron Scott, and I noticed Lance Russell in this particular episode refers to him as Byron Richards. Now, throughout the course of the rest of the shows, he's continued to be referred to as Byron Scott, so again, I don't know if that was some kind of weird mistake made by Lance Russell or if this was an attempt to maybe change his name so as not to sound so much like nepotism. You can't miss Byron Scott. He, if you guys watch anything from this era, he's his blonde hair, goofy haircut, cow licks sticking up. Show closes with Pettisino Nose. It's a Ric Flair promo. He's discussing him and Barry Windham teaming up against Sting and Luger. I don't know if I missed it, but he never says when or where. So I just I thought it was kind of a pointless promo. Match sounds great, but where the hell is it happening? Yeah, if this is the whole event center ripoff, man, they failed tremendously. They're not pushing anything except that stupid contest to go to a uh, wrestle war. Yeah, this is just terrible. They, they're like rehashing the same promos week after week. Like I've seen the same Sting and Luger promo like three or four times already. Right. So just, I don't know, wasted time. And then we close the show with an Iron Sheik promo also as part of Pedicino Knows. But the big thing I have is the event center was, as long as they were coming to your area, was made to hype the upcoming events in your area. So you would get your localized promos. Now, I don't know where this particular episode of Worldwide aired, so I don't know if they weren't coming to that area. So I get it if it's just a generic promo and not a localized promo. But it just seems like they could do a little more with these promos. And like you said, these are repeats week to week. The same promo. So they're, they're not even cutting new interviews. They didn't even have these guys stand around to cut two promos so they could air them in back-to-back weeks. They're just recycling the same promo week to week. It's very lazy and great idea, poor execution is the best way I can describe this. 
Yeah, I just think, I wonder if they just say, oh, that looks easy to do, an event center, we can do that. And then they don't, I mean, these guys come from WWF, that's where these ideas are coming from. So they know the time and effort and work that where those guys are doing TV like two or three hours or two or three times a week, just cutting 40, 50 promos, depending on the area. Right. Uh, these guys clearly don't want to do that. So why take an idea that takes a ton of work to execute properly to be a benefit and not even put in the effort? It's just lazy and bad. If you're doing generic, why would you announce a match? Like we see on the network now that the event centers where they're just in generic promos where guys like Virgil are talking about the feud that he's in or whoever, they don't mention a match. These guys are talking about a match that they're gonna have and you have no idea when or where it's at. What's the point? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's another thing because that match wasn't like it wasn't running running on a house show loop. They weren't doing that match every night. This was a very specific match that might have taken place in a couple of cities, couple of towns. So yeah, it was just I don't know. I don't care for their layout right now, the Pedicino knows. But we head into the nighttime in the NWA World Championship Wrestling episode for March 25th. Show kicks off with highlights of Michael Hayes turning on Lex Luger from last week's episode in the Omni. Show opens with Hiro Matsuda and Michael Hayes being brought out by Jim Ross. We learn that Michael Hayes is announced to be the new color commentator, and Magnum TA never existed. Thoughts on that, Steve? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I already missed Magnum, and I missed Magnum from the minute this show started. As soon as Hayes was announced, I knew he took over. But I, re- like you mentioned last episode, that Magnum was coming into his own and was doing a really good job. Uh, so I wonder. I'm, I'm interested to know what happened there, why Magnum got run off. Hayes all show is not very appealing to me at this point. I think what upset me the most was there's a, there wasn't even a mention of Magnum. There was no hey, thanks for your time here, Magnum. There was just, he was just thrown away. It was as if he never existed. His name was never even mentioned. It's just, uh, you know, the way Jim Ross introduced it, a new color analyst. Well, who's he replacing? It was just really weird. And I don't know that Magnum ever had heat with the company. So I just thought it was a really crummy way to boot him off the show. And before we move on, I do have a little bit of that promo with Jim Ross and Michael Hayes at the top of the show where Hayes basically informs Jim Ross that he's not there for just this week. He's here for the duration, unfortunately. And here we go. So they tell me you're going to be my color analyst for today's broadcast. What? They told me that you're going to be my color analyst for today's broadcast. Well, let me let you in on something. They told you wrong. Why's that? It's not going to be just for today. It's going to be for the duration. You're going to be out here every week? Well, I know I'm going to be here every week, and if you watch your P's and Q's, then maybe you will too. Oh, well, thanks very much. Maybe you're not catching on, Jack. This is my show now. You understand it? You well, I want to tell you something. What is no? I'm telling you something. This is my show. Okay? Sure it is. Now, you and I before had a good rapport. Number one ratings. Well, you're going to hear it. Hey, it might take a little bit of time to educate you and the rest of them, but mark my words. This is my show. Well, we're going to talk about this Lex Luger situation. We're going to hear from the total package a little bit later in the well, program. Bring him out here now. Come on, Luger. Come on now. Huh? He's not available to come out here right oh, now. Sure, we're going to sure. talk about this. He's conveniently not available. Why don't you tell him he's scared? Because I don't think that's the case. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll address this situation more in depth in the next two hours. And, of course, Michael in that promo also referencing Jim Ross and Hayes' time together as uh, the announcers in the UWF, where he says, we were great before, we had a good rapport, we were number one in ratings, which UWF at one point did have the highest ratings of, uh, I believe, wrestling shows on TV. Of course, that was before everything bottomed out and Watts had to sell to Crockett, but that was another time. But, yeah, Hayes makes sure to mention their their history together and they're back together. And I thought they worked okay in the UWF. I'd honestly rather see Magnum here in the NWA as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, me too. And it's not because I don't like Hayes. It's just Magnum, I think, was a different presence. Like, if I wanted a, a Jesse gimmick, I would go watch the WWF. I mean, I feel like that's why Hayes yeah. is going to turn out the end. Where Magnum was a more serious, by the book, color guy that was adding to the show uh, as far as his experiences and things like that. And he knew the moves. He didn't mess up. He was always on point. So to me, this is a downgrade. Yeah, I agree. And the NWA was always more about the wrestling, and I felt Magnum added more credibility as a commentator to discuss the actual wrestling, whereas Michael Hayes at every turn, he just can't help it. I mean, he does it today. He does it anytime he's in an interview, anytime he's doing the the old, uh, whatever the, you want to call those roundtable type discussions on the, on the WWE Network. He can't help but insert himself into every conversation and compare things to himself and get himself over. It's just something he does. I, I'm not even faulting him for it, but it just, it takes away from trying to get the things over that are going on in the ring or in a in a storyline. And I, that's why I was so happy he wasn't involved in the main event at the clash, but we'll get to that when we get to the clash. Moving on with the show, Midnight Express with Jim Cornette over Chance Myers and the Raider in 4 minutes, 20 seconds with the double flatjack. Lane covers the Raider. Basic tag team match right there. Promo by Lex Luger, recorded March 14th in Albany, Georgia. Asks Ric Flair to challenge him for the U.S. title. Luger basically offers to put his title up against Flair. The roles are reversed, and I thought that was kind of interesting, where Lex is the champ, and now Flair is the challenger. Of course, Flair is going for Steamboat's belt, so I don't really know what the whole point of this U.S. title thing was, but it was pretty cool to see Luger now with the shoe on the other foot. It was pretty well done by Luger. It wasn't the best promo, but I did like how he was kind of teasing Flair with the roles reversed this time. You got to come and take my belt instead of me coming to take yours. He did a good job delivering it. I liked it. And Luger closes up that promo by talking some trash on Hayes for the heel turn. We cut back to the studio where Michael Hayes responds. He puts over the Yamazaki Corporation, or if they're still called the Yamazaki Corporation. But Hayes tells Lex to go wrestle in the other organization where you don't have to wrestle that hard. That sounds perfect for Hayes, not Luger. Yeah, Luger is busting his tail. I mean, we see a match later on. I don't know if it's this episode of the or, or what, where he's at it with Kendall Wyndham doing all sorts of stuff. So if anybody needs to go somewhere where wrestling isn't necessarily required, it's Michael Hayes. Next match sees the Varsity Club of Dr. Death and Kevin Sullivan team up. They're cornered by Mike Rotunda. They get a win over Bob Emery and Dwayne Bruce, the future Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. It's Dr. Death with the Oklahoma Stampede on Bruce in 445. You know, what was interesting here was Dr. Death had gotten rid of his Oklahoma red for a blue singlet. It looked very different. It looked very cool, but just so different to see him out there in a different color than red. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It just makes you wonder if they were get to, like, a neutral color for everybody, but it's like Doc was the only one who changed, so. Yeah, and I think Jim Ross mentioned that in commentary, too. He said he's going with blue to, to move towards a, a varsity club color, which I thought was kind of odd, <laughs> but... Yeah, I just thought, I thought this thing, it just stuck out because I was so used to seeing Doc in red, and, and I thought he looked cool in the blue, so, yeah, whatever. During the match, Michael Hayes says that the uh, Road Warriors left the country right after Chi-Town Rumble, which is true, but JR informs him that the Road Warriors will return next week right here on TV, just in time for the Clash. Yeah, no one knows about. That's right. I'm sure, I'm sorry, I called it the Clash. I meant that show in New Orleans. Right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Up next... We go to the danger zone, and we've seen Ric Flair, we've seen Lex Luger, we've seen the Junkyard Dog. <laughs> Are you following me here, people? We just keep falling further down the ladder. And this week, Polly Dangerously spends an exorbitant amount of money for three minutes of time on TBS so that he can interview Cougar J. Cougar J is brought out as the guest this week on the Danger Zone, but he's not the only guest because there's another surprise guest that Polly isn't expecting in one Randy Rose returning, and I have that little bit of audio right here. Randy, how you doing? Randy, Randy, how are you? 
It's Randy Ravishing Randy Rose from the original Midnight. What are you doing here, man? Hey, you, you know, you know, we're on, we're rolling, we're on TV. I've been trying to contact you, Paul, but I've, I've been trying to contact you too. No, 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 no. I've left messages with your secretary. I've called everybody. I can't contact you, so I figured that this would be the best place to get a hotel. You're right here on the Danger Zone. I've been seeing you on TV and watching you. I'm back. You're back. Yeah. You got. Yeah. Hi, it's good to see you. You got good news or what? Yeah, I got great news. You got great news. You got, you got great news. Like you got a job or something, right? You're driving a cab. I've been watching all your jokes, too. They're real, and they're, they're real funny. And they're all jokes. That's yeah. all they are. But my, my pal. I got some real good news, Paul. What? My lawyers got me reinstated in the NWA. I'm back. You're back? I'm back. You're back in the NWA. They found loopholes. They found He's loopholes. back in the NWA. That's great. Hey, who's your manager going to be? Who's my manager? Who's your manager going to be? Hiro Matsuda? Gary Hall? Who's your manager going to be? Well, you, of course, man. Me. I'm going to be his manager. Randy. You blue star. You blue starcade. You blue shy town rumble. You've lost on two live pay-per-views. I ain't going to manage. Jack has never lost. You're a loser. What do you I ain't mean? Gonna oh. Tell you what you do. We went through two years together, up and down the road. What do you mean? You want me to carry you again, right? I lost in Chi-Town Rumble to protect your career. You I put are... my career on the line and jeopardized my career for your career. Yeah? You want me to come again and carry you? And I lost my career, you? and I had to go through the trouble to get reinstated. You didn't do nothing about it. You didn't even return my calls. What do you mean? So what do you want me to do, huh? Cry over spilled milk, huh? You want me to cry over spilled milk or something, huh? You want me to come in and say, oh, I feel sorry for you, huh? What do you want me to do, Randy, huh? What do you want me to do for you? Like I said, I lost to save your career. All right, and uh, for those who have never seen this segment, you can go check it out right now on the WWE Network, or you can listen to us explain to you what was going on at that point in time. And basically what happened here was Polly brings out Cougar J. He's getting ready to interview Cougar J when Randy Rose randomly shows up, comes out hugging Polly. He's forgiving him from all these terrible things Polly's been saying about him week to week because they were all just apparently jokes. Rose is stupid enough to believe all of this, and he seems to come out and he's cool with Paul, and he's looking for Paul to continue to manage him. Of course, dangerously says you, you you basically did the job at Starcade. You did the job at Chi Town Rumble. I don't I don't want to manage a loser like you anymore. And Rose gets upset. He said he did basically took the fall for Paul E. Dangerously refuses to manage him, and Rose gets upset naturally, and that causes what what you hear at the end of that is Jack Victory sneaking up behind Rose with Paulie's cell phone and breaking it over the back of Rose's skull. Victory proceeds to hit what I, I consider a very dangerous looking move. He picks the man up for a pile driver. And then kind of drops him into a pedigree. Very dangerous looking. It's kind of like that move DDP used to do, like that front flapjack type deal. Right. Um, that's the only other person I've known that I've seen do it. This one looks like he was struggling to get Randy Rose's feet in the air to kind of lay him flat, and he just dumped him. It looked pretty bad, but I thought Rose did really well here. Oh, I did too. Hey, I, I like the angle that he was playing. Like, look, man, I took the job for you at Shy Town, so you didn't lose your job. I was, it sounded almost sound like, look, man, we found the loopholes. We knew there were loopholes going into the match. Right. So I took the fall for you, and the last thing you can do is pay me back by managing me still. I thought he did a really good job. Uh, this was a great segment. I thought Rose was tremendous here. The delivery, the, the realism, he didn't stutter. I mean, he, he was spot on. 
he was really good. It was his only chance to really shine on a promo or to show anger or to explain his feelings and any, any, you know, anything he's done since he's been here in the NW. I thought he did a great job. And basically he was supposed to be out after Shy Town Rumble. And I guess he was brought back here because the higher ups just liked him as a person and, and his work ethic up till here. So he was given another shot. And I felt like everything about this was great, except for the stuck in a program with Jack Victory. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, that's the downside of it. But at the end of the day, at least he did get his job back and he made an impact as far as his attitude and the way he handled things. So happy for him. Like he got his one shot and he nailed it. So uh, good for him. I think fantasy booking here. I, I think I would have liked to have seen maybe maybe Rose get attacked by the SST and then Rose has to go find himself a new partner. I think because I think Rose is better off in a tag team. So I think that would have worked out pretty well. But. It is what it is, yeah. and, and tend the segment just for absolutely no reason other than because he was standing there. Cougar J also gets the phone cracked over his head, and he also takes what Paulie refers to as the service revolver, which is, is that pile driver pancake, whatever you want to call it. The most dangerous part of that is he did it right there on the floor, and there's no give, and it doesn't look like yeah. the safest move in the world, but yeah, Cougar J and Randy Rose both laid out by Jack Victory of all people. I guess you got to give Jack a little boost heading into that show in New Orleans where he takes on Lex Luger. Yeah. On to the next segment, Ranger Ross over Max MacGyver with a combat kick in 208. During this match, Iron Sheik comes to ring sideways, the Iranian flag, blah, blah, blah. Move on to an Iron Sheik promo. Michael Hayes interviews the Iron Sheik. Jim Ross doesn't want to. It's, <laughs> Jim Ross just wants nothing to do with the Iron Sheik. I think this is the interview where, where, where Sheik tries to hand off some of his crap to hey, Ross. Ross like, I don't want to hold this. <laughs> so, it was quite funny. I was going to skip over this promo, but I know how much you like Sheik promos, so I did record it for everyone to hear, and here it is. Look who I got here. Yeah, he's here. Why don't you interview him, Michael? You're like the, the un-Americans. You just do it. No, wait, I didn't say I was un-American, but I will give, you know, as an American, you're supposed to be non-prejudiced. And I'd like, as a true American, give you your time to say your point of view. You know, Mr. Michael Hayes, I come over here, like you said, not for a politician. I come over here for one reason, to show American wrestler, Iranian wrestler is better than American. For example, I heard Lara changing in NWA, and Ric Flair lost his belt to the young man, Ricky Steamboy, and another man, Alex Lugan, be the mother, another American. But remember, like Slugan, Richard Stimbo, the Aaron Sheik is not American. I am from all this country. Hold it, hold it. I don't want to hold get this buddy. To Richard Stimbo, like Slugan, look at me. All right, that, we've heard enough. Sheik, I don't want to hear anymore. Look at me. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> yeah, you know, without a video, that audio can be taken out of context. Hold it, hold it. I don't want to hold it. So, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Sheik, man, he's awesome. it's, it's, uh, interesting to say the least, these Iron Sheik promos. And Jim Ross just seems not very amused that he has to even put up with this. But we do go to another promo, this time with Ric Flair and Hiro Matsuda. Of course, Flair chasing Steamboat. Not a whole lot to this, just another typical good Ric Flair promo, which leads to world champion Ricky Steamboat in a squash match over Snake Brown with Jim Ross and Ric Flair on, on commentary from the studio. This match was actually recorded in Albany, Georgia at a house show March 14th, but they do commentary from the studio, Jim Ross and Ric Flair. Of course, Flair talks about his upcoming matches with Steamboat. Steamboat gets the win here over Snake Brown in about three and a half minutes with the crossbody. What are your thoughts on Steamboat wrestling multiple squashes as world champion? I'm not a fan. 
Yeah, I'm not either. He needs to be kept special. Keep him away. Let him run the house shows. Have him come out. Normally, you just have him come out and cut a promo, but that's probably not a good idea either. So, um, I mean, I don't know what you can do for him. Flair can carry the match in promos, but if Ricky Stemo can't cut a promo and he has to get on TV, I guess really the only way to do it is a squash. But I'm with you. I don't like it. The champion should be special, and he shouldn't be seen as frequent as some of these other guys. But I did find it funny that right before, the, like in the Flair promo with Matsuda, Ross like had to stop himself from announcing Clash of the Champions. Like he was about to say it, and then he had right. to stop, and he said Raging Cajun Special from New Orleans. <laughs> so yeah, that's crazy how many times throughout these shows that they literally fight themselves from from saying Clash of the Champions. You see it repeatedly, especially on the uh, the nighttime World Championship Wrestling shows. Stupid. The Steamboat match is followed by a Ricky Steamboat interview, also from the March 14th Albany show. I believe he cut the promo immediately after his match. Basically, name drops Ric Flair in the return match they have planned. He doesn't say when or where. Uh, he also name drops some other interesting challengers like Barry Windham, Dan Spivey, and Dr. Death. I would have loved to have seen a Steamboat Windham match or even a Steamboat and Dr. Death match. Those would have been some damn good matches. Oh, absolutely. Those would have been awesome. And we keep cutting back and forth for Flair and Steamboat here. Flair, Steamboat, we start off with the Flair promo. We go to a Steamboat match. We go to a Steamboat promo. We're back in the studio again. Ric Flair's still there. Another interview with Flair discussing the Steamboat World Championship match. He says we're just days away from a rematch. Again, no explanation. Yeah, no explanation as to when this match is, where this match is. I get it to a point. I know they did uh, several matches in, in the house shows and things like that, but I believe that they're selling this going into the clash. And it's so funny that we're so close and we're, we we don't know anything about this match yet. My note was about a week out and no one knows they're having a two out of three falls match or the fact that this shows the clash of the champions. Like, what's the point of having a special if you're not even going to promote it? Right. And I'll have more on that when we get to the next week here. Up next is Paul E. pops in for a quick interview and has a funny comment I recorded here about Randy Rose, and I'll play that. You know what? That Randy Rose, what a nerve he got. Look at that. He broke one of my phones with his head. I ought to sue, but hey, it's okay, man, because I always keep a backup, and these long-distance calls will go all the way to Samoa. Ladies and gentlemen, Samoan Fatu, the Samoan SWAT team. I just like to deliver dangerously saying that Randy Rose broke his phone with his head. Yeah, I did too. I liked it. That was pretty funny. And then, as you heard, Paulie introduces the SST, and we go to the ring, and the SST gets a win over Tony Suber and Mike Justice in three minutes, fought two with the top rope splash on Suber. Paulie's on commentary during this match. Great stuff. Hayes works well with Paul here, too. I really liked Michael Hayes and Paulie together here in this specific match. And during Fatu's splash, though, Hayes makes the comment, uh, he's up there like a monkey, which I thought was a little tacky. Up on there like a monkey. It's like, is it really necessary? He's from Samoa. Who cares? Like, he's not a monkey. He's a person, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. It's 1989, but that's stupid for even 1989. And with all the stories of Michael Hayes anyway, eh, sounds like it's par for the course. Yeah, but if you think that was bad, wait until you hear this Jim Cornette promo. All right, fans, we're back here. We've seen the Samoan SWAT team in action. <laughs> What a tag team they are, and I want to tell you something. I'm, I've always been impressed with your team, Jimmy. I think they're one of the greatest teams in wrestling, but you really have your work cut out for you against the Samoan SWAT team in the mouth. You know what burns me up? I'll tell you what burns me up. Everybody's been reading about it in the newspapers. There's a foreign invasion going on. Well, now it's come to the NWA, and the fact of the matter is there's a bunch of people in the NWA these days that just plain ain't got no business here. You got 
got guys like the Russian assassins who came in. Russia's great. We love Russia. Well, we beat them at the last clash of champions and sent them back to their friend Gorbachev with the spot on his head. You got a guy like Hero Matsuda who is with dental floss coming out here trying to buy flair, trying to buy Wyndham. Now he's bought Hayes just like the Japanese want to buy the whole country. That's your business, but I don't like it. Okay, you got a guy like the Iron Sheik a crackpot country like Iran sitting the Iron Sheik over here. They sentence people to death for writing books, and they've already taken over the 7-Elevens and all the taxi cab companies. Now the Iron Sheik wants this country, and most recently, you got the Samoans. Two big, ugly, fish-eating freaks from Gilligan's Island slobbering and drooling all over the NWA, managed by a guy from this country. Paulie Dangerousland is an American. I'm ashamed to admit that, by the way. I got no problem with foreigners coming to this country. People from other countries that want an opportunity. But how come it is we never get the people that want to contribute? We only get the people that want to leech off of us or buy the place and take it home. Well, there's three southern boys right here that ain't going to let no Samoans run over them. We're going to take the Samoans. And, Polly, we're going to get to you one time or another. And I hope in the future the Midnight Express gets a chance to run the rest of these outsiders that don't belong around here out of the NWA as well. Here, here, I understand that. And just Cornette being Cornette right there, touching on just about every foreign character in the company. You know, last I checked, Samoa wasn't even a foreign country. It's been been a U.S. territory since like 1900. So I don't I don't know what Cornette's going for there, but yeah, what are your thoughts on this? I thought it was a, a good promo. He didn't cross the line to where it was tasteless, so to speak. Right. I think it, it addressed the heels. You know, she coming over here just trying to take what he wants uh, without really working for it. Like you're the Iron Sheik. Who the heck are you to come in and say you get a match with Luger or Flair? People selling out or my suit of just buying everything. So like what he was saying was probably accurate for the time. People just coming over, just mooching or whatever the case may be. I don't know. I was like three years old at the time. So what was going on in 1989 isn't like what I know. But as far as I go, like I thought it was a good promo. I didn't think it crossed the line of anything negative. Um, now if he was a bad guy, it probably would have been a little bit worse. But since they were the baby faces at this time, I thought he did a good job. Towing the line, but not necessarily crossing it. Yeah, he didn't get bleeped like Michael Hayes a week or two prior. I think overall it was not too offensive. I thought it, I thought I think it's silly that he keeps portraying you know Samoa as a foreign country when it's when it's not. I also think it's a little bit too much with the whole Seven Eleven and, and taxi cab thing, especially since you know the Iron Sheik's from Iran and that doesn't really coincide. But that's neither here nor there. It was a good cornet promo overall. He didn't ramble on too long. It was kept short to the point. I didn't yeah. mind it. I, like you said, especially with the, with the Samoans, he's just getting heat and I, I didn't mind it. And, and that's all it's a, that's all they really have to say right now about him. And I guess it is, you know, they're, they're saying they're, they're fish eating savages, but right. we all know what happens when they get to the WWF like three or four years later. And, oh, absolutely. You know, you know, office coming out with raw fish and they're just completely nuts and bashing each other with kendo sticks. So, Verbally, they're saying it here. WWF visually showed it. So, I mean, it's stupid. They shouldn't be stereotyped and pigeonholed into those stereotypes. But wrestling's been that way forever. And yeah. Yeah. to a degree, they're still that way. So, gimmicks, I mean, man. It's really not much. Yeah, it's just a gimmick. And it's, it is what it is. Speaking of gimmicks, here's Other. an awesome one The Great Muda with Gary Hart in his corner over Jerry Price with the Cattle Mutilation. Move made popular by Daniel Bryan in the early 2000s. Here's Muda's busting it out in 1989. Gets the win in 235 over Jerry Price. 
This week, he's known as the Great Mota on the Chiron. And according to Jim Ross, of course, Muta's name seems to change every week. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I, I know it's supposed to be Muta, but every week there's a different spelling, a different pronunciation by different announcers. It's it's all over the place. But Muta busts out the handspring elbow here, an awesome spinning back kick. Uh, he's getting applause from the fans, which has to be concerning when you're trying to get him over as a heel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like the opposite of Ricky Steamboat. Steamboat <laughs> getting booed as a face, and Muda's getting cheered as a heel. I like how Muda just snaps everything off. Everything he does, he snaps it off with authority to make it stick out. I mean, when you see all this typical guys that you would see in a 1989 wrestling promotion, and then this guy comes in, his nickname that he finally got dubbed, you know, after this match from Gary Hart, yeah, is is perfect. I mean, it, it absolutely is. Man, just what a talent and what what a gimmick. What a, just everything about him, the whole thing is perfect. It's just a shame where it goes, but yeah. And and, and Muda still hasn't debuted the Moon Salt, and he will here shortly. But it, I, week to week so far, the the or match to match so far, the, the moves Muda's been using for the finishes they've been different every time and, and really spectacular, different, uh, just unique moves and really really good looking finishers. So Muda had like ten friggin' finishers at this point, and they they were all awesome. And like you just mentioned, after the match, they follow up with a promo from the great Muda and Gary Hart. Of course, Gary Hart does all the talking. And this is, as you said, where they coined the phrase, the Pearl of the Orient. And that was just an awesome moniker. And I loved whenever Gary Michael Capetta would announce that the Pearl of the Orient, the great Muta. Yeah, that was really cool. I'm still trying to figure out Hero giving Gary Hart Muta, but paying for Michael Hayes. He's not a very good businessman. And maybe that's why the Yamazaki Corporation won't make it past 1989. Yeah, I don't know what you're thinking here. Giving up Muda for Butchery and Michael Hayes. We get a promo. Jim Ross conducts an interview with the new U.S. Tag Team Champions, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. They're accompanied by Miss Missy Hyatt. During the promo, we're shown the final five minutes of the U.S. Tag Team title change, where the first family of Steiner and Gilbert defeat the Varsity Club for the U.S. Tag Team titles. They do a comedy bit here where Eddie Gilbert announces that after they won the championship, Rick Steiner went and got himself a new boat. And it turns out, as, as Steiner starts describing his boat, it's a toy boat that he plays with in the bathtub. Classic stuff. Oh, my God, man. I was dying on this. He's like, yeah, we had a flag on the back of it. And it was blue, and it was ready to roll. And then I put it in my bathtub, and I was scooting it around. I was, I was dying pretty hard. It was pretty funny. And when he, when, when he first gave that delivery, I said, wait a minute, what? And I actually went back and last, listened to the last 15 seconds or so of the promo again. And it was awesome, but... I was watching Gilbert and Missy's expression. I think Gilbert obviously set him up for the, the punchline, so Gilbert knew what was coming, but Missy seemed to legitimately laugh at it. So I, I thought it was really fun. Good stuff from Rick Steiner again. Yeah, Gilbert set it up perfect, man. He was selling it like it was a real boat, you know, big party. He was having a party, and big blue boat with a flag, and <laughs> Steiner <laughs> just bust out the – because I was half paying attention. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. You got a boat. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I pushed it around my bathtub. I was dying. It was great. Up next, an interview with the Varsity Club. Chip Burnham returns, the personal accountant of the Varsity Club, holding that jar of $10,000. Jim Ross conducts the interview with the Varsity Club, in which Kevin Sullivan says they'll be facing the United States Tag Team Champions, Gilbert and Steiner, in a rematch. Sullivan says Gilbert cheated by grabbing his tights to get the win. Jim Ross questioned Rotunda as to why he wasn't defending the title, TV title against the likes of Gilbert, Rick Steiner, Sting, people that actually deserve a championship match. And instead, Rotunda seems to be facing hand-picked opponents to defend his title against week to week. So I like that Jim Ross brings that up. Rotunda's basically defending his title in these $10,000 challenges, but Rotunda seems to be the one issuing the challenges to these job guys. 
and that comes into play the following week uh, when he actually ends up fighting somebody. So uh, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Ross calling him out and calling him on his crap, uh, basically saying, why are you fighting a bunch of jobbers when there's plenty of people that deserve a title shot? There's another hidden spot here, and it's very vague, but if you're watching this particular promo and you're looking for it, you'll see it. And there's a point in here where Doc kind of slaps his hand on the chest of Mike, points out that he has, you know, Mike with him, and it just, Mike kind of makes his face like, you know, why is your hand still on me? Not so much that Mike's disgusted, but that Mike's curious, like, what's going on here? And there's a little more and more where, and we'll see that as we go on, where Doc starts questioning Sullivan, hey, just in passing, how come Mike's the captain? And things like that, so... It's kind of interesting for right now. My big takeaway here was there was no Dan Spivey this week. Boo. And so, in honor of Dan Spivey, I'll play a promo for him. It plays a little howdy duty on your coconut. And we just had to get that fix of Dan Spivey in, Steve. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's okay. It's the best. (laughs) So nice, I got to hear it twice. It plays a little howdy duty on your coconut. You know, I got my 12-year-old saying that now. He finds it hilarious. I do, too. Oh, 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 that's the funniest part. It's like not even really the coconut. It all goes together, I think. I think you you need one for the other, but I agree. Oh, absolutely. I think the oh, coconut man. I think the coconut is the setup and the, oh, is the punchline. So it's like the Rick Steiner, Eddie Gilbert thing. You need the first part to get to the second part. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. We move on uh, TV title match. Mike Rotunda issuing another great challenge this week to Greg Brown. Rotunda has Doc and Sullivan in his corner for this match. Rotunda gets the win in one minute, 51 seconds with the guillotine. Both Rotunda's title and the $10,000 are on the line here. Didn't need it. Two minutes in and out. Rotunda with a win over Greg Brown using that, that amateur hold, that guillotine hold from the amateur ranks. And then we go to a interview with Ranger Ross. And uh, I actually recorded this interview, not because it was really great or anything like that, but I thought I just wanted to show everyone who's not really watching along with us how good Ranger Ross was at, at delivering an interview without, you know, stumbling and things like that to be a rookie. I thought he, he did an okay job. And so here I recorded this and I'll play it here for everyone right now. Ladies and gentlemen, in just a few moments, we're going to bring Ranger Ross out here. Have a few comments. Whoa, that ought to be exciting. You know, Michael, he's a great athlete. He's a, he, were you in Dan Quayle's National Guard unit? What do you know? Come on. No, the, look, you interview okay? I will, thank you. I've been looking forward to it. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. You know, a lot of guys come out with a lot of fancy attire, like my colleague, Michael Hayes. This is legitimate, fans. This stuff was this was earned by this young man. And I think that's, and we're proud to have you here. I want to say that very candidly. Well, you know, I appreciate it a lot. But it comes down to this. Iron Sheik, this is directed right at you, mister. We never forgot here in the United States those 444 days and those 50, 52 hostages. Now then, I'm going to avenge everybody. Because when I went to Iran on the rescue mission, I had no intentions of being a hero. I was simply doing my job. And when I went to Grenada to restore the proper government down there, I had no intentions of being a hero. I was simply doing my job. And when I ran patrols in El Salvador, I had no intentions of being a hero. I was simply doing my job. When I take you, Iron Sheik, in the square circle, in the combat zone, and beat you within an inch of your life. I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm simply doing my job. All right, thank you very much, young man. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking of the Iron Sheik, look who's back. He's in the ring right now. Let's go up to the ring. 
Iron Sheik taking on Richard Sartain. That guy like to put me to sleep. Michael Hayes is wanting to talk about putting someone to sleep there at the end of that promo. Yeah, just go watch this Chi-Town Rumble match. <laughs> you want to go to sleep. Uh, but Anyways. What did you think of Ranger Ross here? Not a great promo by any means. He didn't really have a whole lot to say, but I thought his delivery was good. and He didn't seem to stumble or anything. He seemed to be ready for cutting a promo. Yeah, I, I liked it. I, when I first heard it, I thought it was really good. Um, like you said, he didn't stumble over his words. He's speaking from experience, and I'll, I won't go too deep into this, but I learned something in college uh, during like my public speaking class. Like If you're talking about your history or your, or your life, you should know it. You should be able to deliver that with confidence without having to think about it. And since he's talking about his career in the military, he's clearly comfortable with it because he lived it, and he delivered a promo based off of that, and it, did, it came across really well. And, I mean, to be honest with you, this dude's getting a pop better than Ricky Steamboat is. Yeah, and a whole lot of people are as we continue on with these shows. <laughs> we follow the Ranger Ross promo up with the Iron Sheik match. Now Iron Sheik's being flanked by Rip Morgan. Now they've given Rip Morgan something new to do. He's the flag bearer for the Iron Sheik. And Iron Sheik gets a win here over Richard Sartain in a minute and 40 with a camel clutch. At least George Scott has figured out that Sheiky cannot go. And the matches have been cut quite a bit down to under two minutes. And I'll, I'll take that. No complaints here. Uh, Ranger Ross walks around. He returns the favor from earlier where Sheik had walked around ringside with the Iranian flag. During this match, uh, Ranger walks around ringside with the American flag to avenge Sheik. The Sheik matches are getting shorter, Steve, and I'm not complaining. I mean, they, they should have went shorter, you know, maybe two or three weeks ago, to be honest. After that first time being seen, it should have been cut in half this time. At least somebody's waking up to see it. We follow that up with highlights of the World Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, and All Japan Pro Wrestling. They have a match there with the PWF Tag Team Champions, Jumbo Shiruta and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Match took place on March 3rd in Japan. This match was non-title from both sides. Neither belts were on the line. The match actually ends with a count out in about six minutes. The roadies deliver a spiked pile driver on Yatsu on the floor there. That was so cool to get something different like that on the NW. You would never see that in the WWF at this point in time. Oh, no, absolutely not. It's kind of weird seeing the roadies actually work a match where they're, they're actually selling stuff and, you know, actually doing working. Everybody says they don't know how to work and they're getting squash people and they didn't know how to sell and things like that. <laughs> Just watch that little small clip of them over in Japan and you, you'll think differently. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, good stuff. By the time there, I was done with this six-minute segment, my only thought was, oh, my God, I'd love to do a full year of All Japan, like one of the peak years. I'd just love to go back and go through one of those one of these days. But... Fun stuff right there. And, just, and, and like you said, the roadies prove that they you know can do a little more than what they do in the NWA. And Hulk Hogan the same way. Anything you see from Hulk Hogan in Japan tells you a completely different story of his work ability as you would see him in the WWF and later WCW. Next match, Dick Murdoch forced to team with Vincent Young here over Lee Scott and the Enforcer in 334. Murdoch pins Scott with the death of rolled elbow, baby. Was Murdoch supposed to help groom? Vince Young, because it seems like Murdoch's starting to team with Vince Young almost every week in some way, shape, or form in a tag or six-man tag. I don't like the pairing. I feel bad for Murdoch being put in the situation. It's like the super odd couple. I wonder if Murdoch just picked it up. Like, well, they got nothing for me, so I'll just take this dude on my wing and help him out. I don't know. Young hits a missile dropkick during this match. And the only thing I got out of this Murdoch and Vince Young match, other than I got to see Dick Murdoch wrestle, was there was a line in here where Michael Hayes asks Jim Ross, what kind of music is this? And Jim Ross replies, 
It's the music they played last week when you came out, and I thought that was awesome. Because if you remember last week, it was when Hayes had teamed in a six-man with Vince Young, and I, I think JYD, and they played Vince Young's music instead of Hayes, and it pissed Hayes off. So I just thought it was awesome when, when, when Hayes says, what kind of music is this? And Ross responded with that. It, just, it, was, it was funny. I, I popped. Yeah, Ross is like a like sort of an asshole uh, <laughs> at this point. Like, I mean, he just, when there's heels out there with him, I mean, he just treats them like crap. Doesn't give him really the time of day. <laughs> doesn't want any part of it. And he just gives it right back. And it's a little off-putting, but I, I, I enjoy it because there's some great sound bites out of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes Ross comes off overbearing when doing it, but this was a perfect response. And I like, I like that he's witty. It's just sometimes he gets too witty. But in this instance, I, I thought it was funny. I popped big. I thought that was really cool. Hayes said he would interview Barry Windham the following week regarding his hand surgery. I don't know that Barry Windham returns. So I, I did catch that. But I'm thinking, I don't know that Barry Windham ever comes back. So this might, we might have already seen the end of Barry Windham. But I don't remember Windham returning to the Saturday night program. So Windham may already be on the outs. Yeah, I don't think he comes back, which is unfortunate. He's hitting his stride, his peak. The hand injury obviously cut him off a little bit, but I think there's some notes in the observer about what's going on that we can talk about later. Yeah, I don't see it happening where he's coming back. Then my last note for this show as the show came to an end here was, you know, during this show, they aired commercials for the VHS of the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view. And my question is, why buy it? You gave it away on TV for free already. Yeah, everybody who's going to buy it already has it recorded on their Saturday night shows. <laughs> We move on to Sunday night and the NWA main event for March 26th. Hosts are Jim Ross and Paulie Dangerously. And holy balls, we get our very first Clash of the Champion, Ragin' Cajun commercial. And here it is. The champion, Mickey the Dragon Steamboat. Powered by commitment to family. A true American hero. The challenger, Ric Flair. Fast cars and faster women make this five-time world champion a legend. Now, for the first time on live television, two out of three falls for the world championship. Steamboat versus Flair in the Rage and Cage and Clash of the Champion Six. Live and absolutely free of charge at 3.30 Eastern on TBS, Sunday, April 2nd. And you know you're in trouble when the guy has to include in, in the promo, absolutely free of charge. How often do you hear that when they're when they're advertising something? This is the show that's running against WrestleMania, so I think that's probably why they mentioned that, that you don't have to pay 30, 25 bucks or whatever it was for WrestleMania 5 when you can just watch the Clash of the Champions free of charge. Usually you're in trouble if you have to do that, but I think in this instance, going head-to-head with WrestleMania is why they mentioned it. I, I'd like to think that's why. I'd like to think anyway. so too, but I, I, you know, part of me feels like they're doing this because it's it's a week out, or it's yeah, it's a week out, and there's no, there's been no advertising for it. You are seven days away from Clash of the Champions, and you are just now, you're just now showing advertisements. It's insane, and I just felt like the free of charge was like a desperate plea in some ways to please watch this because it's free. I mean, hey, it's free. What you know, it's Ric Flair and Steamboat. We're announcing it one week out. Absolutely ridiculous. And the show kicks off with the great Muda with Gary Hart in his corner over Mike Justice. Match was filmed on March 14th in Albany, and we get our very first moonsault. Match goes about 3 minutes, 45 seconds, and Muda finishes Justice off with the first moonsault. It's not called a moonsault yet. It's called a lot of things, a backflip. Uh, Jim Ross likes to call it a reverse 360, which doesn't make sense because he doesn't land on his feet, but it is what it is, and Muta gets the win here with the moonsault. Yeah, it gets called a bunch of different things. I mean, I heard the 360 line uh let him, let him name it. <laughs> Whatever he wants. 
Uh, apparently, there was a interview here with uh, the Rick Steiner, Eddie Gilbert, and Missy Hyatt. I don't have it on mine. I can't comment much on it other than apparently Polly dangerously refused to be part of the interview because he has some sort of issue with Eddie Gilbert. I don't know that anything ever comes of that, but I just thought that was kind of odd. We get a rematch from Chi-Town Rumble. Sting taking on Butch Reed in one of the matches we don't want a rematch from Chi-Town Rumble. Match goes 10 minutes. It was uh, recorded on March 12th from the Omni. The, of all the matches on Chi-Town Rumble, this is probably one of the two matches that we, did, we didn't necessarily need to see again. What's funny here is they start the match out by throwing punches. And then the first match, they didn't throw punches until after the match was over. So it's already more heated uh, 10 seconds into this match than, you know, than the entire match they had at Clash that went like 20 minutes. They put in more effort for a house show in the Omni than they did for a pay-per-view match. I'm assuming this is a George Scott thing because his primary focus is house shows. So they want like action and things like that on the house shows instead of, you know, on TV and pay-per-view where you can make more money. I'm assuming this was his idea. Is that, is that accurate in saying something like that? You know, uh, based on who's involved, I think this is just these guys going out there and being able to do what they wanted to do. They were given half the time, which is this match goes 10 minutes. The match at the pay-per-view goes 20 minutes. This is more accurately what they should have been doing at the pay-per-view was go 10 minutes here. But I think it's just more or less them going out there and doing what they wanted to do because we still had tons of stomping, tons of chin locks from Butch Reed. A lot more energy from Sting here than at the pay-per-view, which was cool to see. Reed goes up this time for a shoulder tackle, but he gets pressed off. Sting goes up for a big splash. Reed puts his knees up for that one. Reed charges Sting in the corner. Sting with the old sunset flip out of the corner, the old Briscoe roll out of the corner to get the win. I thought they did a lot more here than they did at Chi-Town Rumble, but you don't have to do very much to do a lot more than what they did at Chi-Town Rumble. Dude, I think I wonder if they felt like, okay, we only got 10 minutes. Let's go out there and go fast for, you know, five or six of it and get it, get go home. Whereas... At the Chi-Town Rumble, they got told they had 20 minutes, and they was like, oh, crap, how are we going to get there? So that makes sense. At this point in the show, Jim Ross questions Paulie about leaving during the first family promo earlier in the in the show. They allude that Paul used to be Eddie Gilbert's family's accountant, dangerously says his issues are with Steiner and not with Eddie Gilbert. So I'm not really sure what, what all that's about. It, like, like I said, I don't believe it leads to anything. It just seems like some kind of comedy they were going for, and I didn't get it. Yeah, me either. Another match recorded March 12th from the Omni, the Midnight Express taking on the Wild Samoans. Cornette comes out and calls out Pauly before the match. The Midnight Express dominate early. Samoans come back, take the heat on Lane. Fatu misses a middle rope elbow. Lane gets the hot tag to Eaton, and Samu also tags in. Cornette pops Pauly off the apron as Eaton was climbing the ropes. Uh, Samoan SWAT team take over on Eaton. At that point, that's when Jack Victory comes down, joins Pauly at ringside, about three quarters of the way into the match. Samu winds up missing a charge in the corner. Hot tags are made to Stan Lane and Fatu. Lane comes in. He does the double Naga knocker to the Samoans. They no-sell the double Naga knocker. I always loved when the Head Shrinkers or the SST no-sold that move. What do you think about that? I loved it, too. It always worked for me, and I, I enjoyed it. And it's like, how many times can you get away with it? You think people are watching tape and not doing it to them, but it happens every match. Yeah, and it just seems like more of a, a face spot, but it, it always worked with the heels doing it. So they, they no-sell a double Naga knocker, but they turn right around and take a double DDT, and they do sell that. So had they no-sold that, too, I would have just lost it. I would have popped huge. But the finish sees uh, Jack Victory trip Stan Lane from the outside. So Cornette runs around and whacks Jack Victory with a tennis racket. Then we get a manager's chase. Cornette chases Pauly through the ring, and Pauly drops his phone as he's running through the ring. So Teddy Long gets distracted by all this, Teddy Long being the referee. 
gets distracted by all this, and Samu cracks both of the Midnights over the head with the phone, and Fatu covers Eaton for the win, and I think Bob Eaton wasn't even the legal man at this point, but it doesn't really matter. SST pinned the Midnight Express just a week out from a match they also have scheduled at the Clash of the Champions. Match goes about 12 minutes. I just thought the finish was the cluster. I thought the guys worked great together. The teams, I thought they were a perfect contrast and were just awesome. These guys were younger and could move with the Midnights. I just thought they worked really well together. The finish was the cluster. I didn't really care for the finish, but it is what it is. At this point, they announced that the NWA World Championship Wrestling tapings will be moving from the TBS studios to center stage, and the, and the tapings will begin this coming week. You know, I'm loving all the Omni stuff here on the main event the last couple of weeks. I think we wind up with four or five matches from this show, which leads me to believe that sitting somewhere in the vault is the Steamboat and Flare match from this Omni card as well. And we move on, and I'll, and I'll cover this in order. Without even being advertised, we have a Friday night special on TBS, the NWA's Countdown to the Clash. It aired actually Friday night, March 31st. They re-air it Sunday night as the main event episode for April 2nd. And basically what it is is a, an hour-long show, mostly building towards the Ric Flair Steamboat match at Clash of the Champions. Was it me, or was this not advertised whatsoever on any of the programs going into this? I had no idea there was a Friday night special, so I read The Observer, where they talked about the special. I'm like, do we have that? Do we watch it? I know, like, during the, I watched the 4-2 main event, which was the same show. I picked up on Jim Ross saying a lot, this coming Sunday, this coming Sunday. He didn't say today, he said this coming Sunday. So I figured it was probably that special, but yeah. Typical George Scott and his garbage booking or not promoting shows absolutely at all. And now he's basically forced to hard sell it all in one special. They're giving you a special night, Friday night, to hard sell this show, which you haven't promoted whatsoever up until this point. And I find it amusing that they continue to sell this match throughout this entire program. It's almost still like he doesn't want to announce like what's going on, like when we're going to see it or the name of the clash. And it's just so weird. And this is the first telecast uh, to air from center stage. Show starts off with a video package highlighting Ricky Steamboat training with the help of his wife, Bonnie. I'm sure she loved getting involved with that. We move to a Danger Zone segment featured the NWA World Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, and Paul Ellering. That's a surprise danger zone, as Jim Ross promised to find someone for Polly to interview. And I love Polly's mannerisms here and his expressions here when he realizes it's the roadies coming out. I know Ross is like, yeah, we got you a special guest this week for the danger zone. And when the road warriors came out, Polly was like, dang near crapped his pants. <laughs> He's like, not these guys. And then he just started kissing butt immediately, which you're about to hear. Yeah, I thought it was very well done by Ross and Heyman here. Yeah, I don't know what was funnier here, uh, Heyman's faces or Jack Victory talking into his Secret Service garb the entire time the roadies are coming out. But I, I did grab some, I did ground some sound bites from the this danger zone, and I edited it down so we can get through it a little faster. But here it is. Well, right now, as I promised, I did arrange a very special guest for the danger zone. Let's go now to Paul E. Dangerously and the danger zone. Cleaning up the NWA on my very own segment, I figured Secret Service here, I figured, who could it be? Wendy Rose does not have enough guts to come out here and debate me. Jim Cornette isn't man enough to come out here and debate me. So I figured, who could it be?
Hello. I love you guys. I'm a member of your fan club. We got all your t-shirts. I got the Road Warrior mask. I... What you need to do, little man, is shut your mouth. Because me, Animal, and Precious Paul don't like the idea of you thinking you can blow smoke when the sun don't shine. And what makes you think that we need some little gerbil-faced twit like you to tell us how good we are? We already know. Can I please? Hey, I got nothing against you guys, but even if I did, which I don't, which I don't, which I don't, the biggest worry you guys need to have is not with me and Secret Services. We're just here to do an interview. It's with Sunday Night. Hi. And the Varsity Club, Kevin Sullivan. No. Come here! You put a bad case in his mouth no. and my mouth. And when you put a bad case in our mouth, we spit it out. I don't no, no. Shut up! What we got going on here is the Varsity Club. For the last time now, we are going to take care of it. Once and for all. Everybody saw what Dr. Guest did. Everybody saw what Michael Dunder tried to do to us. So we're going to end it like true world champions do and stay world champions. They're lucky they left now. I was getting a little agitated. You're lucky you left now. And I was really shocked that Rhodey's didn't come back out and just nail Polly right there. But uh, classic Polly dangerously waits for the Road Warriors to walk away and tell them, you're lucky you left when you left. Right, yeah. I, I love Hawk's promo here. I, I swear I like the fact that every time he does an a interview, he wants to cuss or say so, a word you're not allowed to say. But he, he pushes it and then stops himself and then comes up with another way to say it. Just a tremendous promo guy. And uh, this is a great segment. Everybody did awesome here. We move on to the next segment, which actually features Jim Ross talking with two former world heavyweight champions, Luthez and Harley Race. When it was really cool to see Harley Race out here, this is only two months removed from Race's last match in the WWF at Royal Rumble 89 against Haku. And so we have Thez and Race out here. And basically what, what they're doing here is Ross is asking them both questions about the Steamboat and Flair match, who they favor, why they favor them. And I heavily edited this down because this was a very long segment, especially with the video they show in the middle. I heavily edited this down, but I left in all the conversations Jim Ross had with Race and Thez. And I'm going to play that. Then I'll run back over everything because I don't want to spoil too much up front. And here it is, Jim Ross bringing out Harley Race and Thez to talk about the Steamboat and Flair match. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. In this segment, we're going to be talking to two legends of the game as far as the NWA is concerned. We're going to be talking to the two of the greatest champions of all time in the minds of many of the two greatest champions of all time. I'd like to introduce first, he was seven times heavyweight champion of the world, a legend from Kansas City, Missouri, handsome Harley Race. Also, ladies and gentlemen, as Mr. Race takes his place at our podium, Another living legend in the sport of the NWA. Six times heavyweight champion of the world. Now residing in Norfolk, Virginia, please welcome the legendary Luthez to the center stage studio here in Atlanta. Gentlemen, this Sunday's big event, two out of three falls in the 60-minute time limit in New Orleans, uh, Mr. Thez. 60 minutes. Uh, what are your opinions on a 60-minute time limit for here in the NWA? Well, 60 minutes will be a long haul for much of the wrestling you see on TV today, but with these two great wrestlers, probably the two greatest wrestlers in the world today, 
I don't think that'll be a problem. However, uh, with the great reflex that uh, Steamboat has, he may retain his title, he may not. Uh, we will see. All right, Harley, you've been involved in many two out of three fall events. This match is a two out of three fall stipulation. What does that mean to you as the former champion? The flow goes with the challenger because if he gets that first fall, then the champion's backs against the wall for 60 entire minutes. And between the two of us, there probably isn't any two human beings on the face of the earth wrestled more 60 minutes other than the challenger himself, Ric Flair. Well, in regard to that situation, you cannot make any mistakes in a match of this magnitude. Mr. Thez, in your opinion, who is the most technically sound athlete of the two? Well, they're both very technically sound. However, uh, Ric Flair has been down the road a lot more frequently than uh, Steamboat has. But I'd like to point this out. I think Steamboat has the edge on reflex and inadvertent moves. But there is a possibility that he may run out of gas at that length of time. I don't know. I hope that his reflex will hold up for the hour. We know that Ric Flair's figure four is a move that you know ever so well. You have wrestled a man on many occasions. What is your assessment of that devastating maneuver? Well, I know this. Once it's on, there's no way out. You're going to say yes. And I have said yes to Ric Flair twice around. I know Ric Flair's capabilities. I also know Ricky Steamboat. I'm not here trying to put Ricky Steamboat down by any means. He is a very, very talented athlete. But Ric Flair has been down that road as world's heavyweight champion for almost seven consecutive years. So he's been there. He knows what it's like to win. He also knows what it's like to lose. Flair, I think, is the dominant one. All right, let me ask you this question while we have some time left. With Flair being a former champion, he knows what it's like to go and attempt to regain the championship. Steamboat has never been in that position, Mr. Thez. Will that be a factor in this match? That's a possibility, but I'd like to say this. I go way back with the Steamboat family. I had the original Sammy, now this one here. They're both great athletes, and uh, I think this young man has the intestinal fortitude to carry him through whatever happens. However, if he stumbles and that one rung on the ladder breaks, he's gone. And if, if anyone in the world can do it, of course, Reflair is the man that can. All right, gentlemen, in concluding this situation, I would like both you gentlemen to offer to these fans and our nationwide audience your prediction on this Sunday afternoon's big event live here on the Superstation. Well, it has to be for me. It has to be Ric Flair because, like I said, he has beaten me twice around. Ricky Steamboat has yet to accomplish that. Flair is a superb athlete, and I predict Flair. Mr. Thez, your prediction. Okay, if the match goes 30 to 45 minutes, I say Ricky Steamboat has it. If it's a long, long haul, Flair may get it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you hear it from the two of the greatest that this game has ever seen. Mr. Thez goes with the Dragon, Ricky Steamboat. Mr. Race has cast his ballot for Nature Boy Ric Flair. All right, before we get to the actual promo and discuss everything that was going on in the promo, did you happen to catch Jim Ross's face when Luthes tried to put over Ricky Steamboat as being Sammy Steamboat's uh, son or, or whatever? Sammy Steamboat was a, a wrestler from the, the 50s and the 60s, and he had that Hawaiian ethnicity look. And that's how Ricky Steamboat actually got his name, the last name Steamboat, his real name Richard Blood. But I just thought it was funny because out of nowhere, <laughs> Thes just busts out this, I knew the original Sammy 
and now this one. So the way he delivered it was ridiculous anyway. But when he alluded that they coincided as family, Jim Ross makes his face like, I don't know what the F this guy's smoking. I mean, like <laughs> Ross's eyes bugs out like, this is not true, folks. So I just thought that was funny. If, if you didn't catch it, man, you should really go back and check it out. I thought it was funny. I think I took a couple pictures of it. Yeah, I have to go check that back. I didn't see that initially. Sounds interesting. And did you catch all of the booing every time somebody showed support of Steamboat during that promo? And not just this. Race, when Race says he's not discrediting Steamboat, Steamboat's a great wrestler, the crowd even boos Race when he's putting Steamboat over. So it wasn't just because a certain guy was doing it, but no matter who was putting Steamboat over during this promo, he was getting crazy boos, and Flair was getting all kinds of cheers. So things aren't working out the way the NWA wants to as far as Steamboat's overness as a babyface. Yeah, I picked up on that. I know Meltzer made a comment when he was talking about this special, because later on in the show, they side by side, and both guys are tending to get booed quite a lot. Flair, he's getting cheers, but he's getting some boos as well. And Meltzer actually made a good point. He's like, it's not a good look when both guys are getting booed out of the building. It makes it look like nobody cares about either one of them. I can see that aspect of it, but the thing with these guys is when the bell rings, it doesn't matter what the fans think. They're going to be entertained, and they, they're going to appreciate what they see. So, But yeah, the boos are pretty crazy for Steamboat here. Yeah, and in this particular show anyway, Ric Flair was strongly backed by the crowd. Lots of cheering. There was a Ric Flair chant during this segment with Race and Thez also. I loved what they were trying to do here. A big fight feel with former world champion, two longtime world champion. Harley Race, what was he, six or seven times world champion? Lou Thez, I think, had the belt. He had, he had the belt several times, but he held the belt longer than anyone combined years as well. So you have two of your biggest world champions of all time out there discussing the match. And, but you should have been doing this a little bit at a time each week on the show rather than slap it all together on a Friday night before the, the Sunday night Clash of the Champions on a show on Friday night that you haven't even plugged to do this big hard sell trying to get over the show and getting people to watch it now. What were your thoughts on this whole segment? I liked it. Like I with you, like the big fight feel, it just kind of goes with this whole trilogy of matches. It's just next level. I know we're going to talk about it during the clash, but these guys are two awesome athletes. And like you said, it'd be nice to, you know, have an interview maybe once a week with a, a legend or an NWA former champion to talk about it. That way you can get like three or four weeks of these guys instead of just one night to seven tape it, a promo or some or an interview about talking about the match. They're, they're cramming so much in this one show. It's crazy. That's followed up with a music video highlighting the Flair and Steamboat rivalry since January. There's a lot of live, free-of-charge advertisements everywhere on this show as far as hard-selling the Clash of the Champions show. And where was this for the last six weeks? Because if you remember, as George Scott was coming in, before he came in and after he first came in, and before he had complete control of everything, people were wearing the next pay-per-view shirt a month out, uh, a month and a half out, or hard-selling Clash of the Champions. We were getting these bumpers on the TV screen and things like that. And now we've gotten to the point where we're 48 hours away from this monster three-and-a-half-hour show on free-of-charge on TBS, and we're just now selling it to the people. Just ridiculous. I know that's one of the things we picked up on at the Chi-Town Rumble. People already had their WrestleBoard shirts on in the front row. To go from something like that to this, where you can't even get the name of the show, location, or when this super show at, at New Orleans is going to happen until a week out. I mean, that's just atrocious. And they continue on with the hard sell of the Steamboat and Flare match, which is basically the entire show for Clash, as far as the way they're selling it. Jim Ross actually conducts an interview with Steamboat and Flair, both in suits, both out there together at the same time conducting an interview, sort of like a debate as both guys answer questions from the fans. My first thought when I saw this was, oh, great, a debate. Steamboat doesn't have a chance. Same here. 
this makes him look second rate as far as promos go because I mean he's stumbling on his words he's trying to think of something to say and he his words are like he's misplacing them and so he's not coherent and then as soon as Ric Flair talks and it's like you know perfection personified as far as promos go this was a bad idea this is not like Macho Man and Hogan staring down each other during a, right. a face-off special right. this is uh Steamboat and Flair this is a mismatch bad bad idea before I forget, throughout the show, they had featured comments throughout the program from fans as to who they thought was going to win the Flair and Steamboat match at the Clash of the Champions. I honestly tuned out a lot of them. I only paid attention to two or three of them, but everyone I paid attention to chose Ric Flair. I have no doubt that they put some Steamboat fans in there as well, but I just thought it was funny every time I did pay attention to one, they were choosing Ric Flair to win. Just seemed heavy on the Flair side as well for when you're trying to get over your baby face. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I picked up one when I was paying attention to it, and it was actually a steamboat talking about how he's the best and all that. I figured there were a few in there. I just I didn't notice any myself. I tuned out those fan interviews for the most part. And we get our actually our one and only match on this show. Rick Steiner and Eddie Gilbert taking on Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Mike Rotunda with Kevin Sullivan in their corner. Match was taped March 12th from the Omni. Steiner and Gilbert are the U.S. Tag Champions, although this is non-title. Match is joined in progress, but I think it's only a minute or two into the match. We get a nice little match here. It breaks down into a melee after the hot tag. Rick Steiner with the O'Connor roll on Mike Rotunda. The referee gets busy with Eddie Gilbert in the corner, and that leads to Sullivan handing Dr. Death the TV title, and Doc blasts Steiner with the title. Rotunda covers Rick Steiner and steals the win. Match goes almost 15 minutes on tv so i thought that was a nice way to close the show give us some action and sell the world tag team and u.s tag team title matches upcoming at the clash anyway yeah it was a pretty good match i liked it these guys are going at it it was funny there was a one instance where doc and rick were on all fours just circling looking at each other it was pretty crazy looking it was funny yeah they, they did a really good job in this match i liked it and they close the show with a promo from the Varsity Club. Kevin Sullivan spends the time selling the Varsity Club matches at the Clash and then also hard sells the NW World Heavyweight Championship match between Steamboat and Flair. And here's the promo right here. You know, fans, we have 10 big matches and three championships on the line this Sunday, 3.30 Eastern Time. One of those big matches for the United States Heavyweight Championship, Tag Team Championship, I should say. The Varsity Club, Kevin Sullivan and Dan Spivey to take on Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert and, of course, Rick Steiner. Before I get into that, you know, I've been never awed by anything in my life. Tonight, I was awed. You had to be a dead man not to get goose pimples when you saw four of the greatest world champions of all times. The legends, Luthez and Holly Race. And legends are going to be made in New Orleans because the greatest champion of all, Ric Flair, is going to get the belt back. And then... The franchise of the NWA, and I'm talking about the Varsity Club, is going to have double luck. We're going to grab the brass ring twice that night, you see. Me and Dangerous Dan Spivey are going to take Eddie Gilbert and that moron Rick Steiner and snatch the belt back. And Missy, don't get my way. That's simple. And the other thing, Dr. Death and Captain Mike Rotunda are going to do the impossible right there in New Orleans in the Superdome. We're going to beat the big bad road warriors because there's nobody on the face of the earth can beat Dr. Death and Mike Rotunda, not even the road warriors. So, Jim Ross, let me say this. It will now go down in history. The boxing club will strike and so unclear. 
And there, Sullivan's uh, selling that Ric Flair match as much as he's selling his own matches here. And I guess he, he was told to do that, or either that or he's a good company man. Either way, Countdown to the Clash is what the show was called. Like I said, it aired Friday night. They re-air it as the main event on April 2nd, which is also the same day of the Clash. And with that, we conclude March, which means it's time for the March 1989 VIP Jobber of the Month. And, you know, after some deliberation, and, and I know I discussed it with you as well, it was hard to pick a jobber this month, not because of the same reason of February. February, there were so many standouts, so many possibilities. This month, it was very lackluster. I couldn't really think of anyone that really deserved the nod to be the VIP jobber of the month. So by default, I, I kind of narrowed it down to Julio Barrera and Cougar J. And based on the matches, the opponents, and the segment on the Danger Zone, I had to give the nod to Cougar J for the month of March in 1989. So you figure Cougar J wrestled Ric Flair on TV, he wrestled Mike Rotunda in a TV title match, he wrestled the Great Muda, and unfortunately, he got stuck in there with the Iron Sheik, and I have pity on him for that. But also, he was involved in the Danger Zone segment, which is fairly popular and one of the most remembered Danger Zone segments with Cougar J out there and Randy Rose attacked by Jack Victory. So. Congratulations goes out to Cougar J, as you can go to our Twitter at Wrestling Grenade and pick up your trophy for the March 1989 NWA VIP Jobber of the Month. And what are your thoughts on Cougar J making it to the Jobber of the Month this month? I thought it's well-deserved, like you said. I mean, he's in there with Ric Flair. He does he gets his own, well, not his own segment, but he gets beat up on the danger zone. Most of the time, these jobbers don't get anywhere near those segments, so uh, he earned it. And he got—he had to fight this sheep, which is unfortunate, but he did it anyway. So, welcome to the club, Cougar J. And now we're going to move on to the NWA Top 10 for March of 1989. And before we play the track, I just want to once again remind everyone that the views expressed in the following parody of the NWA Top 10 are solely those of the Wrestling Memory Grenade and do not in any way represent the views of the Retro Network, the WrestleCopia brand, or any other third-party entity. And now, away we go with the NWA Top 10, March 89. Take it away, Not Tony. Hello, wrestling fans. This is Not Tony Giovanni. And now here's a look at this month's NWA Top 10 for the month of March 1989. That's composed by promoters of the Wrestling Memory Grenade Board of Directors. Number 10 this week, Lions, Tigers, and Cougars. Oh my, it's VIP Jobber of the Month, Cougar J. And at 9, he tries to be all he can be. He's driving tanks and robbing banks. It's Ranger Ross. Debuting at number 8, it's the Round Mound of Sound. Who knows? Joe Pettisino knows. Take out your teeth, grab a case of beer, and sit a smell with Dick Murdoch at 7. And at 6, yep, he's still here and climbing the charts. It's JYD, Junkyard Dog. Number 5, it's the Varsity Club's personal accountant and resident fishbowl expert, Chip Burnham. From its mullet to his mustache, it's the poster boy of dirty white trash, Randy Rose's 4. Number 3 this week, he'll break your back, fuck your ass, and make you humble. The Iron Sheik is 3. Stuck at number two because he's not good enough to be number one at anything. It's Michael B.S. Hayes. And once again, coming at number one for however long he stays employed, it's Booker George Scott. And that's a look at the March 89 NWA Top 10. And that concludes another month of the NWA Top 10, Steve. Yeah, congratulations to the top 10, as well as to Cougar J on the VIP Jobber of the Month. Go follow us on Twitter, and you can uh, win some great prizes in the near future. Shameless shill. Shameless plug. (laughs) 
And we move into the weekend now, the NWA Pro for April 1st. My version of the show's incomplete, though it's complete enough, I guess. Uh, show kicks off with Kevin Sullivan now doing his Coach Sullivan gimmick. He's got a whistle. He's having fun blowing it in Bob Cottle's ear. Sullivan's doing his best to try to make this work uh, as an announced team. Not just two guys calling a match, but just a little humor out there as well. Show starts off with Bob Cottle interviewing Ricky Steamboat, the world champion. Steamboat cutting an angry promo here. He throws off his hat for no reason in the middle of this promo. I'm not really sure what he's supposed to be mad about. I guess he's just trying to sell the match with Flair. Uh, I'm glad he's at least trying now. I just wish it felt a little more realistic. And uh, if you're wondering what I mean, I did record the, a soundbite of this promo, so I'll play that. And Steve, I want to get your thoughts on the other side. And fans, we're going to have more six-man tag team action for you. The Samoans and Jack Victory, Paulie Dangerously calls them the Dangerous Alliance. Speaking of a world heavyweight champion, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, here he is, man. Rick, congratulations again. What a great victory it was for you over the Nature Boy in Chicago. You know something, Bob? The first thing I'd like to do on behalf of my family and all the, my, my friends is that thank all the fans that have supported me with their cards and letters and the message. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I just came back from a very successful tour in Japan. It was a commitment that Ric Flair had made before he lost the belt in Chicago on February the 20th. And I came back, and I came back home bringing the gold. But all the way across the ocean, I could hear Ric Flair telling everybody that this was his belt. That Ricky Steamboat was wrestling over there with his belt. Well, let me tell you something, Ric Flair. You come up here and you tell everybody to be the man, you have to beat the man. Well, I beat you in Chicago. And I'll wrestle you anywhere, any place. For the time being, let me have my glory. I am the world champion. The world champion fans Natalie. Your thoughts on Steamboat here? I thought it was a decent promo. I think the problem with what happened here is they didn't do an angle of any sorts except that first time he came back as the mystery partner of Eddie Gilbert. Right. So, I mean, I felt like if you go back to his WWF days, that feud with Macho Man, where there was so much heat and intensity behind it, where Ricky Steamboat didn't even really need to talk. He couldn't talk because of crushed larynx or whatever. Right. I felt like after Chi-Town Rumble, once he won the belt and they were starting to get those boos a little bit, yeah. they should have ran an angle where Flair came at him and throw the respect out, throw, throw everything out the window and get some heat on this feud here to sustain it to where you want to go. And I think at that point, Steamboat's promos would have been a lot better, but they didn't do that. They're just two guys that like each other, and they're just fighting to see who's the best. And Steamboat's doing it for his family. Flair's doing it just because he wants to, his lifestyle, he needs to be the champion. So, I mean, you can only still say so much when it comes to that. So I don't necessarily fault Steamboat. He's not good anyway at promos, but this didn't help him at all. Yeah, and it seems like if this promotion was still run by Crockett, we might have gotten something to where Flair might have wooed Bonnie Steamboat, messed with Bonnie Steamboat, maybe even got physical with her, not necessarily beat her down or anything like that, but maybe put his hands on her. That would have enraged Ricky. People can relate. People might back Ricky more like that. But now that it's Turner-owned, big-time company, things like that are not going to happen. Also, you know, I think that's more of a maybe a Dusty booking angle, maybe not a George Scott booking angle. And of course, Steamboat wouldn't even be here if Dusty was here, likely. So, I mean, it's it's just all fantasy booking. But I think what could have gotten Steamboat more fan support would have been Flair doing something dastardly with his wife. And it doesn't have to be that far. It just has to be just, just kind of like what he did with Precious. It doesn't have to be too much, just enough to where people can relate. Hey, don't mess with my wife. Don't mess with my significant other. And then Steamboat comes to her defense, or Steamboat's just fighting for what's his, so to speak. And I think that would have helped out a little bit. But uh, they, they don't go that route. And, you know, for all I know, they might have thrown that idea at Bonnie Steamboat, and she declined. So I don't know. 
Yeah, hard selling. I mean, even just stealing a kiss like he did at Mania 8, I mean, that would have worked just fine. Uh, you know, just, I'm Ric Flair and, right. you know, let him defend her honor, but they didn't do anything. And we move on with Pro, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner, U.S. Tag Team Champions, accompanied once again by Missy Hyatt. They get a win over the Raider and Lee Scott here, future WCW referee Lee Scott. Eddie Gilbert with a hot shot on Lee to get the win in about five and a half minutes. You know, I don't know what happened. What changed, if anything? Maybe it's just me, but it's like Gilbert has become rejuvenated. He's more upbeat, more exciting for me all of a sudden, just in this last like week of TV. Steiner's still enjoyable as well. Steiner's always been enjoyable. He hits this super power slam here. It's just so awesome in this match, but how can you not like Rick at this point? He does all these moves you typically consider dangerous, but he does them with such power and ease that these guys are clearly in good hands. Uh, I still don't think Missy fits this group. Um, it's just like they're going out of their way to get Missy over uh, in the corner, and I'm just not a fan of her here with these guys. But Gilbert and Steiner are getting a little bit more over with me again, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I picked up on it as well. looks like they're having fun together. I think they've accepted the roles that they're in and maybe have gotten over the fact that they got their momentum killed. And they're, they're just taking the ball and running with it. And I, Missy being in could have helped Eddie have his girl there with him. That could have helped him, you know, boost morale. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak um, so. Ha- having missy with you will do more than booster morale but uh you know <laughs> you know what? and i think these guys you know they'd worked together before so they already know each other really well and i think they got a little of their tag team rust off here because they did a spot here that was just so simple but so clever gilbert actually takes a little bit of a heat from the job guys here just so he can make a hot tag to rick steiner and the crowd explodes when steiner comes in just something simple like that it was really cool Rick murders Lee in this one, by the way, with the Steiner line. Lee got his head knocked off uh, by a Steiner line. Um, That was ridiculous. I actually grabbed a gif of that. I'm going to throw that up on Twitter. You guys go check it out. Steiner mauls Lee Scott with an awesome Steiner line. And I know I remember when we were discussing Jobber of the Month, you, you kind of threw Lee Scott's name out there as a potential candidate for March. But, you know, I went and looked and he didn't debut on WCW or NWA TV until March 18th. So I didn't think he really qualified. That's why I gave it to Cougar J. He was there the entire month. So that's the only reason Cougar J got the nod over Lee Scott, because Lee Scott's really been trying here with some sick looking bumps and wanting to do those top rope elbow drop misses and things like that. Honorable mention to Lee Scott, who's coming to his own as a jobber here in just a matter of a couple weeks. If Lee Scott sticks around, he'll definitely be in the running. He's well on his way to jobber of the month for April. And we move on to a six-man tag with the Varsity Club. It's Dr. Death, Mike Rotunda, and Dan Spivey all teaming up against Mike Justice, Thomas Ivey, and Richard Sartain, or, or as the announcer calls him, Richard Sartarian. Uh, Dan Spivey's really trying here. I mean, he's throwing drop kicks, rushing leg sweeps. He's doing Hogan's big leg drop. At one point in the match, I thought this was pretty rough. The varsity club tried for a triple tackle. Uh, all three guys running at uh, poor Thomas Ivy had to have been scared shitless. They're all running at him at the same time. Only Dr. Death connects. He runs right into, he gets plowed by Dr. Death. Doesn't get touched by Spivey or Rotunda. Rotunda's like eight feet away from him when he gets mauled, but good cover up on commentary. They claim that, uh, basically they formed a line so that nowhere, no matter where Ivy went, he was going to get hit by somebody. When in fact, obviously they were all trying to plow him over at the same time, but Dr. Death alone was plenty enough, but it made for a fun visual there watching all three guys run at him. Thomas Ivy had to have been crapping his pants. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought Spivey got him a little bit, but Mike had no shot. <laughs> he had no shot at hitting him. Another point in the match, Richard Sartain tries to take one of those uh, twisty inside-out type bumps on a double clothesline, but doesn't even rotate, just takes it right on his head, dumps himself on his head. Not even the fault of the other guys. Dude's just awful. This guy's blown a spot in every match he's been in so far. 
and I hate to say this again, but I don't get how Sartine ends up with the gig of one of the ding-dongs. And I know everybody's like, dude, it was just a ding-dong. But they were meant to be gimmicks on the show. They were meant to be full-time workers, employees in the NWA, and actually win matches. So uh, that's why I don't get why he was chosen. I don't know. Makes no sense. I mean, in hindsight, being who the ding-dongs were, it was perfect. I'm glad Sartain was stuck in that, because I love what happens to him at the end with the skyscrapers. But at this point, like, I just don't get it. And Dr. Death, I mean, he can tell he's kind of upset with Sartain in this match. He, he picks him up in a press and just <laughs> dumps him down. Like, it was a press slam, but it, it was almost like a press slam driver. Doc just wasn't having none of this, dude. <laughs> and, th- and then after the move, the dude kicks out. And I don't know if he was supposed to. Because Doc, like, says something to him, gets up and drops a big elbow and covers him again and gets the win. The varsity club go over in five minutes. So I think dude even kicked out of a movie he wasn't supposed to at that point. So I, I don't know what's up with this dude or why he continues to get so much work here. Who knows? Joe Pettacino knows. Another replay this week of the Randy Rose Danger Zone segment with Jack Victory. That's all I got to say about that. NW World Heavyweight Champion Ricky Steamboat in the ring with a win over Chance Myers and a crossbody block off the top rope in 2 minutes 45 seconds. Another Ricky Steamboat match. And as you pointed out, you made a good point that you'd rather see Steamboat in the ring than on the mic. Unfortunately, we got both here, so it didn't really work out that way. But Steamboat with another quick squash match as World Champion. I don't mind seeing him do it. I just don't want to see him do it this often. Same here. And at least Another, it was short. It was, I think he let him get a little action, but it just, as long as it's like a two or three minute peak, you know, not getting touched type deal, it's fine. But when you have him go four or five minutes and have to let the dude get offense, that's a waste of time. We get another great Muda squash this time over Dwayne Bruce and the Moonsault in three minutes. Here's my notes for this Muda match. Insane speed on his kicks. Just, they could take your head off. Handspring elbow is the opening move in the match. I mean, I, I love that. I mean, just came right into the match and delivers the handspring elbow right out of the gate. And then when he hits his power driving elbow, Bob Cottle coins the phrase, greets lightning elbow. So I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, it was nothing special, but Bob Cottle gives the move a name. I don't know how you boo this guy. How's this guy a heel? I, I don't know who saw this guy work and said, you know, I guess just because he was Japanese, according to Gary Hart, the fans would never cheer a Japanese wrestler. So that's why he was a heel. But Muda's starting to do the stomach claws, which, you know, was a kabuki thing. I don't think that was really needed with all this other stuff and then to slow it down and go into the claw spots. It just felt like it, it was a reset for me, but I'm not cramping on the match. Great stuff for Muda, as always. Usually you get those heel managers that promise they're bringing somebody in, and it never really delivers, but this delivers. You can tell this is the first time Bob Cottle's ever seen the great Muda, or at least do the moonsault. Because it's a natural reaction from Bob Cottle when, when Muda does the moonsault. And I had to go and grab a sound clip of that to play for everyone. To the eyes. To see what's in those eyes. Watch this, Bob. Under the rope. And Cottle was just in awe. <laughs> you can tell he had never seen anything like this before. Yeah, he's great. Bob Cotto is uh, one of those guys that's awesome. He can, he can get high, he can get low, he can, he's serious, he doesn't miss a beat, he's just a pro's pro, and it's always funny when you can catch these guys breaking K-tape a little bit and just being legit blown away by what they're seeing. Get those yeah, he, natural human reactions, it's just awesome. Yeah, he was definitely lost in the moment, and that was a really cool reaction from Bob Cottle. And the only thing I, I think we're missing from this show was the uh, last match on the show, six-man tag team match with the SST teaming with Secret Service Jack Victory over uh, three job guys. Um, the only thing I had noted here was when they when they opened the show with the picture clips of all the matches that were going to be on the show today, 
Bob Cullow actually mentions that the SST and Jack Victory collectively are known as the Dangerous Alliance. I really, I hadn't heard that before, so that really stuck out to me. Uh, yeah, I, I heard that too, but I didn't necessarily re- recall like, what they were talking about. To hear it here is kind of crazy. So the next time any of you guys want to go, go out there and stump anyone, you can ask this trivia question. Who are the original members of the Dangerous Alliance? Everyone's going to tell you the Rude Faction, when in fact it's Jack Victory and the SST. Mind blown. We head over to Worldwide for April 1st. Lance Russell with the guest host this week with him is Ricky Steamboat. I don't know going into this if I want to hear Ricky Steamboat on commentary for an entire show. Flair was great. Hayes was Hayes. Uh, Steamboat, if it's anything like his promos, I thought, man, I'm in trouble having to sit through this. Not quite as excited for Steamboat as I was for Flair. The only thing that makes up for with me is that we get Lance Russell on the show. And naturally, because Steamboat's on the show, we kick things off with Lance Russell interviewing Ricky Steamboat, a quick promo about his matches with Ric Flair coming up. We get Sting over the Enforcer with the Stinger Splash and Scorpion Deathlock at 3 minutes 20 seconds. Sting's still just goofing around in the ring, having fun, if you will. Like he says in his promos, he's not far off from telling the truth in those promos when he says he's just goofing around. I think there's a place for it, but I'd like to see more aggression from Sting, more seriousness from Sting. He plays with the Enforcer's mask. He slides out of the ring in the middle of a spot while the Enforcer's hitting the ropes. He does the Three Stooges nose bit again. The Enforcer blows a spot at one point when Sting does a jumping drop down, kind of throws the Enforcer off. It's kind of weird, honestly. Uh, Sting jumps high into the air when he's trying to do a drop down, and the Enforcer barely gets over him. And on the rebound, Enforcer just runs right into Sting. Total blown spot yeah. there. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I feel like if he had something to do, he would take it serious. But knowing that they have nothing for him and haven't had anything for him for three months now kind of makes him, you know, well, I'll just go horse around until you give me something type deal. I wonder if that's what was going on in his mind or if he was just trying to find his footing. But the crowd was eating it up. So if the crowd's eating it up, I mean, I guess it's one of those things. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, yeah, I mean, um, and, and that's why I said I think there's a place for it. And I think there's a place for it with Sting. I just he's doing it so much. I'm just like, but like you said, also. There's, he has nothing going on right now, so I guess why not? It's just he's reaching juicer levels for me, Art Bar juicer levels, WCW. Not He's not taking it that far, but I mean, it's just to where the entire match is comedy, and then you go into all your big spots at the finish and take it home. Another one here is Sting does a top rope body block during this match, and my first thought was Steamboat's not only on commentary, but he's also your world champion. I, I think you should be leaving that move to Steamboat. Sting doesn't even cover. He just hits the move and gets right up, so I don't even understand the point of it. That's not knowing his place. That's what that is. <laughs> Six-man tag team action with the Varsity Club again. Coach Sullivan at ringside for Rotunda, Dr. Death, and Dan Spivey over Tony Suber, Greg Brown, and Dwayne Bruce. It's pretty cool listening to Steamboat here. It's actually some of the better stuff Steamboat's said since he's come back to the NWA, but all he's really doing is you can tell he knows the Varsity Club's college history. I don't know if he's reading it off a paper, but it was really educated and really well done, better than Jim Ross. Really great offense here from all three of the Varsity Club. Doc with an awesome-looking power slam. Spivey with a power bomb. Rotunda does the guillotine on Dwayne Bruce to end it. So they all hit, like, basically one of their finishers on Bruce to, to take him out in four minutes. We get Ranger Ross over the Raider in two minutes, 50 seconds with the combat kick. Ross still coming out to the Quezons Go Rolling Along song. Lance Russell references his time in the armed forces and mentions how much he enjoys the song. This was basic again for Ross, uh, but it was good. He's good at the basics. Match wasn't as good as his first match on the WCW program, but it was okay for Ross's experience level. There was a few hiccups in this one, but nothing offensive. I don't think he should be put into a prominent spot based on his background until he's ready, but easily could have been groomed and learned for a while before getting a push. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just kind of forcing it because of his background, just to have something like that on this show, definitely doesn't give you a, the right to have a prominent role. But uh, I think if you worked at it, I think you could turn into a really good wrestler. 
Another great Muda match here. This time he's accompanied by Gary Hart and Hiro Matsuda over one of my favorites, Richard Sartain. Muda wins this one uh, again with a moonsault in uh, just about four minutes. The match starts off again with a big handspring elbow. I just don't like Hiro Matsuda out here. I guess it's just the stereotypes thing that they can't get out of. I had to think that had Steamboat stuck around past the summer, could we have gotten a Steamboat and Muda match? That would have been amazing. That would have been top-notch, tremendous. And up until now, you know, Gary Hart had been managing Abdullah the Butcher, and Abdullah the Butcher had quit not too long before this. And Abby was actually scheduled to be in one of the matches at the Clash, and he gets replaced by Muda. So I have to say that this is probably the greatest trade in history, the trade-up of Muda replacing Abby. By far. And just like Bob Cottle was blown away on the last episode when he saw his debut of the Moonsault, now Lance Russell gets a look at the Moonsault for the first time, and here's Lance's response. Made up by the hair. It's amazing to be in the business as long as Lance Russell has and still be excited and passionate about what you're seeing in front of you. Yeah, it just shows that he cares about the business. I mean, he loves it. It's not a job. It's something he wants to do. You can tell that by the reaction. And that has to be rewarding for talent. You know, you pop the announcer, like you said, somebody's been in the business as long as that, and you get a pop out of him. Uh, That means you're doing something right, for sure. We get tag team action, Midnight Express over Lee Scott and John Brewer. Uh, Midnight's go over with the double flapjack on Lee Scott in five minutes. And you know it had to hurt because usually when they do the double flapjack, Bob Eaton takes the bump and Stan Lane's too lazy to take the bump. He just kind of stands there. But this time even Lane took the bump. So now you know it really hurt. And poor Lee Scott took the double flapjack. Midnight's go over there. It's silly the stupid things I notice. Those are the things that matter. Those are the things that make wrestling wrestling, to be honest with you. That's what I look for. And we close the show with Joe Petticino knows. He talks about the great Mota. Petticino lets the cat out of the bag, claims that the great Muda is the son of the great Kabuki. I hate that they did that, and I'll get into that more when we talk about that a little more in another show here. But they do an interview with Gary Hart and Muda. Hart refers to him as Muto here, which is his real name. Not much else to this. I don't know what to say. I don't. They're still finding their place here with Muda and Gary Hart. And, and these Petticino knows, they mean well, but I don't know. Some of They're not working for me yet. This is what irritated me about this whole thing where they mentioned that he's the son of Kabuki. Yeah. Uh, after the, after Hart cut his promo, they went back to Pedicino and Pedicino said, I'm not going to call him the great Mota. I'm going to call him the son of the great Kabuki. And I'm just like, you have a talent like great Muda and you're going to call him the son of somebody else and not let him stand on his own, like his own merits. Just stupid. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, to be honest with you. And Pedicino just says that. And I was like, wow. Okay. You know, 
And to quote Jim Cornette about Pedicino, and I'm paraphrasing here, Pedicino was a good guy. He he loved the business, but sometimes Joe Pedicino thought he knew more about the business than he actually knew about the business. And I think that this felt like Joe trying to get himself over because he also said after the Gary Hart promo that uh, it's, you know, basically tough titty, says the kitty. I heard that Shawn Michaels say that to Bret Hart on a, on a Raw, so I had to steal that. But basically he's telling he's telling Gary Hart, too bad I, I spoiled your, you know, your hidden secret. I let the cat out of the bag. You're just a freaking announcer. Could you imagine Sean Mooney going on there and, and cutting a promo and exposing something inside the WWF? I mean, just, I don't know, Joe, Joe needed to know his place, and this wasn't his place. I agree. Because, like, he mounts it on here, and then they get all shocked when they announce it. I think it's on the next show, the World Championship Wrestling Show, where they actually announce it that he's the son of the Kabuki. So, uh, yeah, Pedicino just went in for business for himself, it sounded like there. That's what it seemed like to me also. And we head into our final show before Clash of the Champions, the NWA World Championship Wrestling Show, Saturday night show, April 1st. It's also the final episode inside WTBS Studios. Sigh. Ah. And thank God we kick off the show with Jim Ross and Michael Hayes. And Michael Hayes is wearing, quote, unquote, normal attire this week, normal clothes, uh, here instead of those god-awful-looking robes. I don't know what happened to Hayes because he had some awesome-looking robes early on in the Freebirds days. And this crap he's wearing here in 89, it just feels like my 8-year-old daughter put it together for him. I'm not paying that much attention to Michael Hayes in his entire, so. One thing I did pay attention to was the NWA debut of Shane Douglas here in singles action over the Raider. Match goes about four minutes. Uh, as I mentioned, it's Douglas's debut. Uh, I think based on research, because I've been curious who this Raider is, because he seems like he has some experience in the ring. I looked it up, and the only thing I can come up with is it claims the Raider from 1989 is Randy Barber, which would make sense. Barber, a long-time talent enhancement throughout the, all of the 1980s in Florida and Georgia and Mid-Atlantic area. So if it is Randy Barber, that would make sense here. Certainly a long-time job guy. He knew his way around the ring. And if you compare Shane Douglas in 1989 to pretty much anything Shane Douglas from 92 forward, we get a completely different worker here. Shane's still finding himself. He's doing a bunch of spots here that you would never see him do throughout the 1990s. Uh, he does the snooker leapfrog and blind leapfrog spot. He's, he's sloppy in spots. There's miscommunication in the match with the Raider, but Douglas just does some interesting stuff that you don't necessarily correlate with Shane Douglas matches. He does a sunset flip at one point. Then later in the match, he actually gets the win with a slide under sunset flip, although there was no flip involved, so I'm not really sure what you call that, but it's the pinning combination still. And what did you think about Shane Douglas's debut here in the NWA? You know me. I'm a, I'm a big Shane Douglas fan. He's one of my favorites. It sounds like I have bad taste, but uh, <laughs> I was happy to see him because I don't remember much of this part of his career. Like you said, he was he was just trying things out, getting his footing. I know he gets the gimmick later on, just a little bit down the road. Uh, I, I thought the finish, I kind of liked the slide through. He, like he, he slid underneath him, like doing like a baseball slide, and just kind of grabbed his feet and, like, and got the pin. It looked different. It was creative. Something needs to obviously get rid of and come up with something better than that. But I think, he, like I said, like you said, he's just trying to find a spot splitting here. You know, I mentioned back in an earlier episode, I think it was episode one or two, there was a fan with a giant laminated sign in the crowd. And now, if you watch this episode of the World Championship Wrestling Program in the crowd, this is now the third time I've seen a laminated sign in the ring. I, I don't know. Was it commonplace in 1989 to laminate your signs? I have no idea, but I got to think that's expensive. I mean, I, I don't know. I wonder if it's the same people and they're just doing new ones or just rehashing or if they got the ability to just do this. But those are some, they're pretty big signs from yeah. what I've seen. Yeah. It can be cheap. 
to do that, especially in 1989. So we just witnessed our debut of Shane Douglas. Now we witness the return to the NWA of Bob Orton. No longer a cowboy, he's just Bob Orton. Gets a win over Dwayne Bruce here in five minutes with the superplex. Orton looks good physically. In fact, he has that WWF build now. He's thicker. Uh, Orton's just in his late 30s, so he can still go. But he's just bland and doesn't really meet that 1990s-style wrestling criteria. He, he doesn't have to be flashy or be a gimmick or a character. He just needs something. Even that freaking cowboy hat gives him a little personality. And doing that old-style front face lock, rear chin lock for most of the squash, it just it doesn't work. And you wonder where Randy gets his moveset from. <laughs> Orton's so smooth in the ring, though. Like, everything was so crisp and clean, and every little thing that he did, it just looked really good. But, yeah, you're right. It wasn't – I mean, he's just boring. The only thing I liked about this match was Orton sits Bruce up on the top rope for the superplex, and instead of just going up and doing it like in your typical squash match, he just cocks back and just levels him with one big right hand, kind of just to set him in place, to stun him long enough to – get up there and do the superplex, and I, I thought that was kind of a nice little touch by Orton. So immediately after the match, Gary Hart jumps up onto the apron, shakes Orton's hand, congratulates him on the win, and we go over to the interview area, and Bob Orton's now with Gary Hart. Basically, we learn that Gary Hart has purchased the rights to Bob Orton's contract. He's his manager. Gary Hart goes on to say that Bob Orton ain't no junior no more, and now we learn all of a sudden that Bob Orton has a match with Dick Murdoch tomorrow at Clash of the Champions. So Orton debuts, and he already has a match at Clash of the Champions tomorrow. How fast that works. One thing I realized during this promo, it's creepy how if you kind of unfocus your eyes just a little bit and you stare at Bob Orton, it looks like you're looking at Randy Orton. Just totally creepy. Yeah, I put that down here. I was like, it's crazy how much <laughs> Randy looks like his dad. <laughs> I mean, I, didn't, I never really noticed it, like especially with like all the Piper stuff that I've watched. Right. But with his hair and the way he looks here, like, man, it's a spitting image of Randy. It's crazy. We move on to a non-title match, uh, U.S. Tag Team Champions Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner with Missy Hyatt, and they take on Kevin Sullivan and Dan Spivey. Missy's looking nice here in her white outfit, short top, skirt, boots over the knees. Love watching Rick in here with Spivey. Love the hosses that can go. Watching Rick Steiner in there with Doc or Spivey is always fun. They just beat the crap out of each other. Steiner's potential as a worker here is just unlimited. Like, when you watch everything this guy's doing, the power slamming of these big guys and the mauling over of... He literally mauls over Spivey. Just think about that for a second. Like, Rick Steiner, half the size of Spivey, just runs him over. And I hate to say it because I'm not, like, a monster proponent for people. I don't have issues with the big guys and the little guy thing, but watching Spivey bump for Eddie Gilbert's punches, it felt a little fake for me. Like, that was a little too much. I don't know if you caught that during the match or if, that, if it really even got your attention. No, I didn't pick up on it at all, but I mean, I, I can see it. Gilbert kind of seems a little bit out of place when it comes to the feud with Varsity Club. Because Varsity Club's so big, unless you have Sullivan in there, I mean, he's just going to look tiny and unbelievable compared to like what Rick Steiner is doing. And I think Sullivan is perfect to be the, the, the catalyst or the opponent for Eddie Gilbert in this feud, because Eddie kind of just inserted himself in this feud because Rick Steiner was already in this feud. But Sullivan and, and Gilbert, they're smaller in stature, and I think that Sullivan offsets that really well. And I think Rotunda and Gilbert would be just fine as well. Uh, but the match goes on. Spivey with the boss man slam on Steiner. Goes into his bear hug. Does the side slam. Kevin Sullivan comes in. Hits a couple double stomps. I mean, they're just working working him over. Uh, but the story with this was uh, Steiner just kept getting up after all these finishers. And Sullivan actually levels him with three clotheslines in a row. And Rick Steiner just keeps getting up. And Sullivan does his face like, this guy just won't stay down. And Steiner with the hot tag to Gilbert. 
uh, Gilbert with a crappy hot shot. They were too close to the ropes, and Gilbert hits this hot shot on Sullivan. Sullivan takes it on his gut. Looked pretty bad. It breaks down into a four-way brawl. Sullivan goes after Missy again. Gilbert with his favorite roll-up on Sullivan once again, the same move that he used to beat Sullivan for the tag team titles. This time Sullivan kicks out. Kevin winds up sending Eddie shoulder first into the corner post and hitting a back suplex pin on Sullivan. And Sullivan gets the win here in the non-title match. So the Varsity Club get a non-title win over the U.S. Tag Champions in about 7 minutes 45 seconds, heading into a rematch tomorrow at the Clash. We come back from break. Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner out there with a promo. They want revenge for their loss. Steiner goes crazy. I don't know what the hell is going on. He was slamming his face down into the, the podium. I mean, it was hilarious, but I mean, was just, I don't know, man. I guess, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't know either. Uh, it's hard for me to pick up on what he was saying, and he was just going nuts on that podium. But yeah, you're right. I mean, hard telling what he was thinking. Gilbert closes the segment by alluding to the old Gucci bag. Missy Hyatt, very famous for loading the Gucci purse. In the old days, uh, the first family, when they were heels, and they would use that quite often to win their matches because uh, Eddie's last sentence uh, in this promo was to Kevin Sullivan, uh, Missy might knock your head off, Kevin. That was basically Eddie Gilbert alluding to a loaded Gucci bag coming into play at Clash of the Champions, and we'll get to that when we get to that. Danger Zone with Paul Lee and Jack Victory. They bring out the great Muda, Gary Hart, and Hiro Matsuda's guests. Paulie says Muta reminds him of Kabuki, and this is where Gary Hart basically admits that Muta is the son of the great Kabuki. Paulie says he sees all these resemblances to Kabuki. And other than the painted face and a, a wicked kick, Muta does nothing resembling Kabuki. Well, except the mist. Kabuki was little more than an underneath guy with a not-so-great body that Hart gave the character to. He didn't look like much, but the whole painted face, mist thing was new, and it got over, and he could definitely twirl some mean nunchucks. The one thing in the ring Kabuki could do was throw a, a nasty kick to the head, and that was just about it. Hart loves throwing around all these Japanese terms. I don't know if you've noticed that in these promos. He likes to sound wiser than everyone else. Talks about dojos, then he has to explain what a dojo is. Talks about Gaijin, and then he asks Paulie if he knows what that is. You know, it's, which is Amer- which is foreign talent that wrestle in Japan. So Hart's speaking like he's Japanese here, basically. I, I don't know. I, I don't really care for all that nonsense. It's just Hart trying to get himself over. Yeah, I thought this segment was, I mean, after you watch the Worldwide, you watch that and Pedicino kind of spoiled this, and then you go to the danger zone and it actually is, you know, the news is broke the way it should have been. Right. Um, I don't know. It's just so stupid that you would hamper talent like this with stupid stuff like being the son of some dude. Just give this guy, let him go out there and wrestle. He, I mean, Gary Hart, I can see it makes sense. You need somebody to talk for him if you're going to get him up the card, but... This guy would have been better off by himself, just letting him figure it out on his own. Yeah, I've never been a fan of that whole fake son of. I was, I hated when the giant was the son of Andre. I hate that Muda has to live in Kabuki's shoes when Muda does more than fill his own shoes, and he's not in the shadow of Kabuki whatsoever. And they're referencing a name which is outdated based on the time frame. There's a lot of fans here in 1989 that don't even know who or what the great Kabuki was. So it just really felt unnecessary. Ron Simmons returns to the Saturday night program in singles action here with a win over Bucky Siegler in five minutes with a spine buster. Simmons was a babyface in an earlier match that we discussed, but here he, he doesn't come off as a babyface or a heel, but he's very aggressive, and I bought him more as a heel here than a face. Early in the match, he hits an Arn Anderson-style spine buster. At one point in the match, he started working the arm bar, selling for the jobber. There was just a lot of stuff in the middle of the match I didn't care for. I didn't think Simmons, a guy looking like Simmons, especially just returning, Needed to be selling to a guy that looked like Bucky Siegler. Also, 
Simmons slowed the match down and with his body and his physique. He didn't need to do all of that. I, I would have liked to see just a bunch of power stuff and take it home. Same here. Simmons with a, a pile driver that looked like pure death on poor Siegler at one point. I don't think Simmons should be doing that move anymore, and I don't think he did. Hayes calls it an, an inverted pile driver. <laughs> it was yeah, and I, pile driver. like, what are you doing, Michael Hayes? Yeah, yeah, I didn't understand that either. At one point, Simmons locks in a bear hug, but Siegler jumps up too high, and Simmons actually locks in the bear hug underneath Siegler's, Siegler's ass. So he's like squeezing his thighs. It, I don't know, man. He doesn't even readjust, so I just thought that was funny. Simmons whips him back off again, hits uh, another spine buster, this time the Ron Simmons-style spine buster. Just too many weird, weak-looking submission holes during this match for me with Simmons. I think just those spine busters, the pile driver, things like that, that would have... Simmons should just basically should have mauled the dude more. I agree. Just kick his ass and go home. On to another Ricky Steamboat promo. It's the rematch, the two out of three falls NWA title match. Jim Ross is asked when the last time he remembers a two out of three fall NW world title match was. He references the early 70s Briscoe and Funk match. And Steamboat says, that's the kind of champion I am. And I'm thinking, so you're a throwback to the early 1970s. Okay, that's probably not the best thing to say here. I'm also thinking, do you know how many two out of three fall NW world heavyweight title matches took place between the early 70s and 1989? A ton. But that's neither here nor there. We get the Road Warriors over Snake Brown and John Brewer. Good to see the roadies back in the ring after what felt like forever. Match goes 50 seconds. Animal with an assisted power slam off the middle rope on Brewer does it. When Animal goes to power slam Brewer here, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, he he slips. I don't know how he slips, but he slips, and Animal basically catches him across his chest and has to, like, drive him down. But it was a little scary there for a minute. (laughs) Animal starts to jump off, and he loses Brewer, but he catches him and saves him, and if you want to call that saving him, and drives him down for the win. Match goes less than a minute. Yeah, I picked up on that. He, he dang near dropped him, but he held on long enough to go down with him. Thank God Animals is as big as he was. Road Warrior interview follows. They talk about their time in Japan, and they talk about their match with the Varsity Club tomorrow night at the Clash. Next match, Simone SWAT team with Paul Lee over Jim Bryant and to- Troy Allridge. Match goes three minutes. Samu with that nasty-looking middle-rope DDT and Allridge. You know, I grabbed a gif of that. I'm going to throw that on Twitter as well. That was just nasty. I sent that to you on Skype. I wanted you to check that out because Samu kind of traps Allridge on the way down, and he doesn't really have room to catch himself or take a proper bump, and he's basically drilled in a very dangerous-looking way that could have really jostled your neck, done some really nasty damage to the neck. Yeah, it, this move is really dangerous, and uh, I, I love seeing it. It's it's creative and oh, it's, different. but It's a badass move. It, it's very dangerous, and all it takes is probably one little half-hair, you know, misstep, and it's over for that person. So uh, not over in the sense that the match is over. <laughs> A lot more is going to be over if it's messed up. Yeah, it's a great-looking move. This one was even more dangerous and bad-looking compared to the rest. So, and What's that old saying in professional wrestling? It only takes 14 pounds of pressure to break a neck, and, man, that's just a very dangerous move. We get a post-match beatdown. The Samoans continue to beat down on their opponents. Fatu with the big flying splash on Brian after the match. At one point in the match, uh, I think it's ta- Michael Hayes refers to him as the tag team of the 90s, which you could kind of believe at this point in 1989. Hayes also acknowledges his history uh, wrestling against the Samoans in Dallas, which uh, they did have a feud there. Buddy Roberts had turned on Hayes and become a manager of the Samoan SWAT team. That's when Buddy started wearing lays and uh, <laughs> all these Samoan skirts and things like that. But yeah, the Samoans had, did have a, a feud there, quite a heated feud with uh, Michael Hayes and Steve Cox. In fact, that was one of the last feuds I really remember in Dallas before uh, Jerry Jarrett came in and took over and, and made it more Memphis-y. 
roster. I can only, I can only imagine uh, the the promos by Hayes in that one. Holy cow! Well, not only that, I, I'd have to go back and watch the matches, but I can't imagine Hayes bumping for these guys like these jobbers are doing. So, yeah, and that oh. really makes me want to go back and check all that out again. So I'm gonna have to dig all that out and check out that stuff at some point. We get the great Muda in handicap action here over both members of the Cruel Connection. He delivers the Dragon Suplex, the full Nelson German Suplex. Gets the win in 1 minute and 40 seconds on one of the Cruel Connection. This is where Muda debuts the Mist before the match as well. And we also learn that Muda will be wrestling at the Clash, but we don't know against who. So, i.e., squash match, I'm assuming. Oh, man. And Jim Ross, boy. (laughs) Jim Ross with another quickie on, on Michael Hayes and... He's trying to put Muda over. He says he's younger than Kabuki. And Jim Ross points out that most sons are younger than their fathers, Michael. So I'd, just another good one. Do you say, like, how many skinny islands have you had? <laughs> or something oh, yeah. Like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only drunk. Oh, my God. I was laughing pretty hard at that one, too, for Hayes getting it by Ross there. And just more Muda greatness here. Plancha to the floor. His planchas are amazing. There's, he gets up so high just to deliver a plancha. Missile drop kick back inside. Handspring elbow, the dragon sleeper, just a lot more goodness from the great Muda. Promo time with the junkyard dog. Apparently he's wrestling Butch Reed in New Orleans, and he references their old ghetto street fights that they used to have back in the uh, Mid-South promotion. Dog actually calls Butch Reed Captain Nappyhead here. Died, fried, and laid to the side. And had this been six years ago, they were on top. They were main eventing the Mid-South territory, but this is 1989. Dog would have been a draw here. Reed would have been a top name here too, but now a filler match at best on the Clash, and I'm really, I really question that why it's even put on the show. Ranger Ross over Paul Brown with a combat kick in three minutes ten seconds. Pretty basic here again. Ross isn't regressing. He's simply not being given any time to work a match since his debut. His debut match, I think, it went long enough for him to really show off some of the things he could do, and they've shortened his matches here. I think he needs a lot of play on syndication. Work some syndication squash matches for a while to, to find himself and get ready for the prime time here. I don't know that Ross needs to be so much on these world championship wrestling shows. He's more of a pro and worldwide guy right now, just until he finds his footing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you there. And this is where we learn that Ranger Ross will be battling the Iron Sheik at the Clash, another questionable match at best. And what a way to put together this giant card that's scheduled for tomorrow. They just keep announcing basically the entire card during the show as the matches go on. So this is how we're learning of these matches. If you're not watching the show, you have no idea what any of the matches are for tomorrow night. Uh, when I was reading The Observer, he mentioned that this this Saturday night show got a 2.0 rating. But yeah, we'll touch on that later. Another promo, Polly Dangerously with Jack Victory. Polly puts over Jack Victory working Lex Luger for the U.S. title at Clash of the Champions tomorrow. So we learned that that's a match also. I, actually, I think they touched on that last week as well. But at some point in here, I think Dangerously mentions it's Michael Hayes' birthday. Not that I care, but I just thought that was random and weird. We go to the ring with Secret Service Jack Victory over Don Sanders with that pile driver pedigree flapjack thingy that's called the Service Revolver. Victory goes four minutes, 15 seconds to get the win. Big booty Jack Victory, you think that would get over as a gimmick? Probably not. Maybe the original Rikishi? Like if he trotted out there in a thong, would that get Jack Victory over? Would that work? Absolutely not. Not, because- not in the NWA. Because I find it ironic that he's called Secret Service, but th- there's nothing secret when you got an ass that big. Uh, you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> as soon as that dude came out from under his hood as the Russian assassin, I think everybody figured out who it was, and I could just see the conversations now. Oh, man, that was that was Jack Victor, the, the blackmailer from The Clash 5. <laughs> Stuff like that. And believe it or not, Jack Victory 
was the last match aired from WTBS Studios. How's that for some trivia? Out of everyone, this was what goes on last from the historical WTBS Studios. Yeah. Though technically the last match scheduled was to be Sting taking on Mike Rotunda for the TV title. In fact, they taped that match at TBS Studios, where Sting won the belt, but it was so bad they made them redo it the next night at the first center stage taping. And that second match is what we get here on this week's TV. Sting won the TV title basically twice in a matter of two days. First on March 29th, but the match was so awful in the studio that they retaped it again the next night on March 30th at center stage. And to explain away... For the fans who attended both shows, they had the referee bring the belt out instead of one of the wrestlers, and while on commentary, they announced Rotunda as champion. But in the studio, the fans never hear that. The fans in attendance were told that there was a controversial finish to the original match, which I don't know what that was because I've never seen the original match, which caused the belt to be held up, and basically the fans in the studio believe that this is a vacant belt and the mat- this is a rematch for the vacant title, when in fact on TV it's being sold as a championship match with Mike Rotunda as champion. And that's what we have next is Mike Rotunda taking on Sting from center stage. Your referee now is Nick Patrick. Nick Patrick coming in to be a replacement referee for another referee, which we'll talk a little bit more about at Clash of the Champions. But we get Rotunda defending the championship here against Sting. We get Sullivan, Spivey, Dr. Death, even Chip Burnham at ringside for this match. They went all out for this one. Yeah, they did. And this is our first look at center stage, and I know you've been waiting for this, so I want to get your thoughts on what center stage looks like here. I like it. It's still a little dark. I mean, I think they're still working with it. I didn't like the, the obviously the world championship wrestling backdrop that they had at TBS isn't going to work here. They, I think they recognize that. It just looks livelier. It looks more authentic. I like the lighting under the ring or on the ring, I should say. The different entrance areas. Uh, it's just different and unique and uh, I, I like it. I, I, I love center stage. It's the wrestling I grew up with as far as NWA goes. So uh, I was excited for the move. They needed to do something, I think. I know you love the studio wrestling and that was kind of the end of an era type deal. It was more than ready, more than time for that to happen. Yeah, and I mean, I have to agree. I do love me some studio wrestling. I, I love every every version of it from Memphis to Crockett on down the line, Georgia you name it. But it was time. It was time to grow as a company. Certainly, if you want to contend with Vince McMahon, you need to move out of a, a small studio. And it looked really good. I liked, as sad as I was to see it go, I understood that it needed to go. And I am I was totally fine with the change. I, I'm still sad that we lose our studio wrestling, but center stage was needed. There's more fans. It looks nicer. It's, it's more happening, <laughs> to use a term from 1989. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the match with Sting and Rotunda, you know, all the varsity club are at ringside. And it makes it makes this whole thing a dog and pony show for me. And I'm wondering if that's because the first match was so bad that they used this to masquerade in case the match came off bad again. And how bad could it possibly be anyway? I mean, they put Hayes and Assassin on a pay-per-view and this is just free TV. I'm just assuming there was a really bad screw up in the finish. And that's what caused them to retape the whole thing. Yeah, that's probably most likely what happened there. Basically, what happens here is the Varsity Club try to get involved repeatedly in the match. Finally, Ricky Steamboat and Lex Luger come out to thwart the, the heels off and hold them at bay while Sting's trying to beat Rotunda for the belt. Well, at one point, we get a Ricky Steamboat Dr. Death stare down, and I was like in awe. I was so pumped. I knew we weren't getting the match, but I was like thinking about what could be so many missed opportunities while Steamboat was in here. I mean, obviously, he had to do this flare program, so he didn't have a whole lot of time to do anything else, but... Just so many guys would have loved to have seen Steamboat wrestle or defend against in the middle of all these flare matches. Yeah, same uh, here. It would have been awesome. He spent his whole run over in Japan 
in between flare matches, it felt like. So they never really get that opportunity to fight anybody else, which is unfortunate. One of Sting's go-to finishes, it seems like, when he's in competitive matches on TV, is that slingshot from the apron back into the ring to get the win. He did it to Reed at the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view. He does it here again to Rotunda, but Rotunda actually kicked out. So I was really glad he, he kicked out and they didn't do this finish again for Sting. It becomes too repetitive in Sting's repertoire. At one point, Sullivan gives Rotunda for an object. I have no idea how bad the first match was, but this wasn't very impressive either as a whole until the second half of the match. It really picked up for me. I actually enjoyed this match. I thought it was really good. It didn't feel like there's a lot of rest holds, like a typical Rotunda match. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a little sloppy, but it just, I like the ending too, where he's the typical, you know, with Sullivan coming in and knocking him out while the ref was distracted, but Sting kicked out and went a few more minutes there to finish it off. So I thought it was, it was really good to finish and I, I like the ending of it. Yeah. I think we differed on this match and that's totally fine. My notes here were, I didn't think they really gelled well until those last couple minutes in the match. Uh, last few minutes, maybe not just a couple, but up until then, for me, it was just like back and forth with random crap, like more nowadays type stuff. Like, I'll hit you with a couple moves, you hit me with a couple moves. That's the way it flowed for me. And I, and you're right, it was way more up-tempo than any other micro tundra match you're going to see. So in that fashion, yeah, it was a better match. But still, I just didn't think it was really telling much of a story. It was just taking turns doing moves for a while there until the finish. Really great last couple minutes sequence. Rotunda nails the old right-off clothesline here, IRS style. Doesn't go for the pin. He starts paintbrushing the back of Sting's head. Pisses Sting off. Sting hulks up. Hits the Stinger splash. Locks in the Scorpion death lock. This is great. This is where everything gets a little chaotic, but it's structured chaos, so we know what's happening. Dr. Death on one side of the ring distracts the referee, while the Varsity Club also distract Lex Luger and Steamboat. Everybody starts trying to get gets a little physical. And while all this is going on, Sullivan sneaks around to the other side and nails Sting with something, I guess another foreign object, to break the Scorpion Deathlock on Rotunda. Then Mike makes the cover, and you think it might be over, but Sting gets his foot on the ropes. So Rotunda picks him up and hits his finisher, not the guillotine, but the uh, the butterfly, the double-arm suplex, but only gets a two-count. To me, at this point, this felt like a bad Raw match nowadays, like a good bad Raw match. And basically what I mean there is 90% of the match is just random crap, but then the entire finishing sequence is so awesome that you forget the first 10 minutes wasn't really that great. And that's how I saw it. And I know you like the whole thing, and that's that's fine. There's really nothing wrong with the match. It just didn't do it for me. But that's how I felt about this, because there were so many Raw matches when I used to do reviews for them, write, write reviews for them online that these matches would put me to sleep. And then the last three minutes was just nonstop, boom, 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 boom. And I, I forgave the first 10 minutes. And that's how this was for me. Yeah, that's kind of like, I thought it was awesome. It was after the finish. I just like the ending sequence more so than anything else. Because, you know, you get the typical finish where Sullivan comes in and you thought, okay, he's going to get screwed out of it and we're going to get a short run here with this feud. But they flipped the script a little bit and it kind of like caught you off guard. So it was like, oh, wow. And then you, you just, you're invested at that point. So I think that's what did it for me. The, the first five minutes or so of the match or 10 minutes of the match, you go in the trash. But the last, you know, five or six minutes was pretty solid. That's what yeah. I liked about it. And then after Sting got his foot on the ropes from the foreign object shot, after he kicked out of the double arm suplex, Sting basically gets the win here with the O'Connor roll, but he hooks the trunks when he does it. And I'm not a big fan of Sting, you know, hooking the trunks to get the win or win the title, win the 10 grand here. I don't think he needed that. I don't know why he didn't just execute the O'Connor role and, and get the win here. Just hooking the tights just seemed out of place for the character of Sting. It doesn't take know. away. It didn't take away from the finish. It didn't kill it for me, but I just, it, I didn't like that part. What did you think? 
I thought he just put his hand on his ass for some, for no reason other than to just keep his balance. I don't know if he actually pulled the trunks. I know right. Hay says he did, and then Ross says no, he didn't. And they show the replay, and he clearly has his hands on the tights. But I don't know. I don't know if he just did it to keep his balance or if he actually pulled the trunks. But uh, either way, it wasn't a good look as far as the end goes. So I'm with you there. But it didn't take away from the good match at the end, I didn't think. And I'll have to go back and look at that. Maybe that's just how I perceived it. It just seemed to me that's what I thought I saw. I mean, you could be right. So I don't know. I'd like to go back and check that out now that you say that. And you know what I just thought of? How the f- was the TV title on the line beyond the 10 minutes? Haven't the Varsity Club been pushing for the past several weeks that the TV title in the NWA rules book, it's not on the line after the first 10 minutes? This match goes 16, 17 minutes. So none of this makes any sense. How did Sting win the 10 grand? How did Sting win the TV title when all of that's only on the line in the first 10 minutes? This match goes almost double that. We just throw all that out the window and we forget that? I guess, unless they're using that to run the rematch tour. But yeah, I, I, 17 minutes, I think you, you said it was. That's definitely more than 10. So, I mean, screw the rematch tour. There's no argument. If the rule book says that, that the title doesn't change hands after 10 minutes, then you don't get the title. I mean, that should have been an argument. They should have rolled out of the ring, made that argument, and got the belt back immediately if that's what the rule book says. So I just, I hated that part of it, I guess, now, now that I think about it. But the match was good, and we'll just pretend like none of that even happened, I guess, and move on. And we do close the show this week with a Ric Flair promo. Once again, final hard sell for the Ricky Steamboat match at the Clash. And that ends the episode of World Championship Wrestling for April 1st. And you started to mention this earlier. We come to find out that this is the lowest rated episode of World Championship Wrestling in history. Show does a 2.0 rating in the history of World Championship Wrestling. You go back to Georgia with this. You're talking 16, 16 years at least. Of World Championship Wrestling. Do the math. How many episodes is that? Uh, yeah, it's a lot. And I mean, you figure that's got to be over 800 episodes. I mean, not, not counting any, any interruptions, but that's a lot of, I mean, this, that's terrible, dude. That's just god awful, inexcusable. Yeah, absolutely. You use this show to hype your big special and the fewest amount of people watch it. So if you're using this to hopefully get, get those viewers on Sunday, you shit the bet on this one. <laughs> No other way to put it. And then we follow up the next night. As I said, the NWA main event for April 2nd was just a replay of the countdown to the Clash show. And uh, just a few bits of notes and news here before we get to the Clash. Brian Pillman's rumored to be coming in anytime now. And there's rumors that he might be thrown into the first family with Eddie Gilbert and everyone there. He might come in with Tom Pritchard as a tag team. I think they made the right decision with what they ended up doing with Brian Pillman because he, he seemed to be ready for a singles push. And I was I was glad when he came in, he wasn't stuck with anyone. And that's no offense to Eddie Gilbert, Rick Steiner, or even Tom Pritchard. You know, I was happy that Brian Pillman came in doing the singles run when he does end up here shortly. Yeah, me too. I wasn't too keen or too excited for anything else they were talking about. We learned that Bob Orton was originally supposed to come in as a babyface and team with Dick Murdoch to feud with the Road Warriors, and that was a George Scott idea. But the roadies are faces now, so that's why Orton was brought in as a heel, and we end up with the Orton-Dick Murdoch feud instead. What a crap feud that would have been. Could you see Murdoch or Orton taking the bumps from the Road Warriors that would need to be taken to get get the match over? That would have been terrible. (laughs) And that's just another George Scott idea. We also learn, at least according to The Observer, that Dennis Condry was actually originally supposed to be in the Secret Service Jack Victory spot. Yuck. Yep. Could you imagine Dennis Condry trying to work that stupid gimmick? <laughs> that 
wouldn't have worked. If he didn't leave before Shytown Rumble, I think when he came in and heard that, he would have left that day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dave Meltzer marking out for the Great Muta. Now he refers to the Great Muta as the blanking Great Muta. So tell me Dave Meltzer wasn't a mark. <laughs> An NWA mark, for sure. We get rumors of an SST versus Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner feud. I think I would have liked to have seen a few matches between those two teams. That would have been fun. And we've seen it kind of at WrestleMania 9, but I would have loved to see Rick Steiner at this point in his career going against those two. They would have sold for him like a million bucks, and he would have beat up on him for sure. And up next is Clash of the Champions 6, Raging Cajun from the Superdome. It's going up against WrestleMania 5. We learned that there was only a few hundred tickets sold a few days before the show. You could argue that this was the first conspiracy theory of Vince hiring someone to infiltrate and destroy his competition, like they said he did with the uh, NWO and World Championship Wrestling. You could you could argue that Vince hired George Scott to come here and just ruin this co- company. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I can see it. But who's to say that he's going to get hired? Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't believe that's the case, but I'm just saying you could argue that because it looks like this guy's purposely trying to destroy this company at this point. He's clearly not trying to, but he is. You think that once he got hired, Vince reached out and said, I will give you X amount of dollars if you go in here and just sabotage their <laughs> company going up up until WrestleMania because you know you once they realize what the hell's going on, you ain't going <laughs> to last that much longer afterwards. So, well, that's a can you hell just of get a- through the class? That's a hell of a conversation to have been had. Uh, do I think that happened? No. I, would I put it past Vince? No. This is just George Scott being an idiot and losing touch with the way wrestling had changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is with the guy stuck in the 70s, and this is what he's going with what he knows. I mean, this is pretty cut and dry for what George Scott seems to book. So, I mean, I wouldn't buy a conspiracy theory here. This is just somebody who hasn't evolved with the times. So we go into the clash with basically no advertising. This was also, you got to remember, New Orleans, this was also the area Bill Watts had sold to Crockett because the territory had bottomed out, the economy had tanked, the oil economy tanked. This is just the wrong city, definitely the wrong venue. And, uh, oh yeah, did I mention no advertising? Plus, as I already mentioned, it's up against WrestleMania Five. The mega powers explode. <laughs> we get... 4,200 fans inside the Superdome with only 900 tickets sold the day before the event. I can't even fathom that. Less than 1,000 people had purchased tickets to Steamboat and Flair on a big show, Clash of the Champions, one day before the event took place. That's sad. I feel bad for guys like Steamboat and Flair in this instance. I mean, these dudes put on a classic, a Chi-Town Rumble, and then they get told, hey, we're going to run it back at the next Clash, but by the way, we're not going to push or promote or do anything to help you here. Uh, just just mind-boggling. These guys should be getting all the publicity. They should be selling this show like it's the biggest thing ever, and at least try and get 10,000 people in there, 4,200. That's an embarrassment. Terrible, terrible, terrible. You're running out of things to say about this booking and the promotion and what they're doing. So before we kick things off with the actual matches, I was wondering, you know, I read The Observer where Meltzer did the review of WrestleMania 5 and Clash of the Champions 6. What do you think of Dave saying Michael Hayes did a better job as a color commentator for The Clash than Jesse Ventura did at WrestleMania 5? Yeah, you mentioned that to me, so I went and read. He said he did slightly, performed slightly better. Oh, is that all? 
But it's just one of those subtle shots that you would expect from Dave Meltzer from this time frame. I mean, because anything the NWA did on TV, I mean, he would fault him for obvious and you have to crap on him for. But when it comes to things, if he likes it, it's going to be, it's all well, it's better than whatever WAF's doing. Like they said earlier, Paulie and Ross doing better than Gorilla and Bobby. And they've only been at it a week. So, I mean, it just feels like it's an opinion. Uh, it's not a very good one, in my opinion. But it, it is an opinion nonetheless. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Hayes on commentary. He's not the worst, but he's not the greatest either. Right. Uh, he, he yelled over little things. There's a point in the show where he's like, uh, wow, Jim, he almost uh, slammed him through there, Jim. Like, just overreacting to some of the action that's just basic. Right. Um, he's in it for himself. I mean, I, a lot of people say Jesse was in it for himself. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I just don't like Michael Hayes. I don't, I don't know. It's and there's no show that Jesse Ventura did where somebody outperformed him. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, and if I could just find the no. time to sit and meticulously grab a soundbite of everything nonsensical Hayes said during the show and made it into an audio file, it'd blow people's minds. But if and when you guys go to watch the show, just keep a close listen to everything purely sexy says here. And as far as Hayes being better than Ventura on this night. I don't think so. And just one other quick thing, too. When Howard Finkel passed, I, I had the Observer and I read the obituary or whatever. Right. And he mentioned, like, Howard's one of those guys that all the wrestlers wanted them to call their match, like, introduce them at least once. Or everybody wanted them to say and knew, whatever. Meltzer even mentioned at that point, and I know this is just one night and this is what he was going off of. But he mentioned there that there's a group of wrestlers coming up after the Hogan era that wanted Jesse to call one of their matches. Yeah. Uh, Michael Hayes is nowhere near that level. Um, so did Jesse have a bad night at WrestleMania five? Probably not. I, I enjoy Jesse at five, but the, if it sucked for him, it's probably because the show was four hours and it was kind of boring. So uh, he did his best with what he was presented. Jesse during the Hogan Savage match is better than three hours of Michael Hayes on this show by far. Yeah, and I asked you the other day when we were talking online, I said, or I, I mentioned that I could name a variety of sound bites of Jesse Ventura from WrestleMania 5. Couldn't tell you one sound bite of anything Michael Hayes said from Clash of the Champions 6. So, there you go. And you know, you asked on an earlier episode too, do I think Ted Turner's paying attention to the programming? Well, listen to this. Ted Turner's own news people sent a camera crew to WrestleMania to document WrestleMania, but there was no mention, nothing, of Clash of the Champions. I wonder if the Turner people even know that Ted Turner owns the NWA. Yeah, there's another thing, too, where a commercial for the WWF got through, just like they did the year before. Right. Um, about it. And I guess, I don't know how it works. I'm not in television, but they sent like six of them out and only five of them got caught. Uh, so the sixth one kind of slipped through the cracks, just like it did the year before. And last year they said this would never happen again. And then they turn around a year later and do the exact same thing. So as soon as Clash is over, there's a WWF commercial right behind it. Right. That's just Vince being, you know, he gets crapped on. But if he does something, he does it to the absolute fullest potential that it could possibly be. And he doesn't cut corners and get lazy with stuff. I mean, you can talk about now, but back then when his livelihood was on the line, he didn't cut corners. He did everything he could to make it work and do everything he could to hurt other people, which is ruthless, but it's a business. And with Jim Ross and Michael Hayes on commentary, we get Gary Capetta as a ring announcer. That's always a plus. 
Uh, let's look at the originally planned card before it was changed. We were supposed to have Abdullah the Butcher taking on Steve Casey. Abby opted out, left the company. That was always for the better. And so we end up with the Great Muda, so no complaints there. Originally, we were supposed to have Junkyard Dog versus the Iron Sheik. What a scary thought, but doesn't happen. Butch Reed versus Dick Murdoch. Doesn't happen. Sting versus Rip Morgan. Happens, but in a dark match. Lex Luger versus Jack Victory. Happens. Dark match. The only matches that were originally scheduled that actually air are the Midnights and SST, Gilbert and Steiner versus Doc and Rotunda, the Roadies versus Spivey and Sullivan, and Steamboat versus Flair. That's it. Four matches from the original card end up going on here. Show opens with Michael Hayes and Jim Ross out there. Hayes replacing Magnum TA on the big shows as well at this point, obviously. We learn that Terry Funk is going to take over for commentary on the Flair Steamboat match. And it's just like Magnum TA is an afterthought. It's as if he never existed for the last couple of months. It's just such a shame. I agree. People say Vince is a douche, but Jim Hurt isn't far behind in that respect, dumping on Magnum and essentially wiping him completely off TV overnight with no mention whatsoever. And like at Chi-Town Rumble, we get another music video kind of hyping up the show with the action from some of the wrestlers involved. I like the mindset of giving those who are flipping the channels a taste of what to expect. Maybe hook them in, keep them on the channel. I thought the addition of the music video thing was uh, okay here. Yeah, I liked it. We cut to the national anthem, and we go into our first match, which is the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette taking on the SST with Polly Dangerously. Match goes 20 minutes and 32 seconds. Quite a bit long. Bobby Eaton hits the rocket launcher on Samu. Looked so awesome. Bobby Eaton was just so awesome. This this last year from Eaton off the top was so cool. But yeah, Eaton hits the rocket launcher on Samu. Cornette gets up on the apron, nails Polly. Basically similar finish to what we saw on the main event from the week prior. Fatu nails uh, Bobby Eaton with the phone to steal the win for the SST once again. I thought the heat was fine. It was a solid match, maybe a tad long for the pace. It wasn't as exciting as I was anticipating, but nothing really wrong with it either. I just don't know if the midnight babyface dynamic works with every team the same. I'm with you. It wasn't as good or as, as I thought it was going to be, but I think you had that hot view with the original Midnights and Pauly and Jim Cornette, and you have all that, and then you just go right into another team doing it. I mean, there could, there's probably burnout from the fans with seeing Cornette and Dangerously go at it, just different teams. So I think it's probably best that, you know, the Midnights are out after this, pretty close to it. So I think it's best for everybody that they kind of got a little break because there really wasn't much left for them to do. We get the Great Muda over Steve Casey with the Moonsault in 8 minutes, 11 seconds. Before I get into the match, I just want to point out, Michael Hayes points out that he holds the attendance record of 28,000 fans here against the Junkyard Dog back in August of 1980 in the Mid-South Territory. And for years, it was common to do more than 20,000 fans at every Superdome show. But Hayes says his 28,000 fan record is in jeopardy here tonight. This is a crowd of 4,200 fans, and that's papered. So I think he shouldn't be Michael P.S. Hayes. I think he should be Michael B.S. Hayes. <laughs> You're not wrong. And, you know, even when the area had financially bottomed out and Watts sold to Crockett, it was only doing less than a thousand people. And that was with, like, Dr. Death and Dick Murdoch in the main event on those shows. And that's no offense, but they're no Ric Flair and Steamboat. And they, and those shows were just doing a thousand. So you're telling me papered, all you can do coming out of this is 4,000? Uh, I mean, it just makes you think just how dreadful uh, this is from beginning to end. Because the logic of not selling this show on TV was so fans wouldn't watch it on TV. However, it seems like they didn't sell the show to the local fans either to come buy tickets. So just a disaster all around. Yeah, terrible. But this match was originally supposed to be Abby versus Steve Casey. Quite the change here. 
We get the, again, reference the son of Kabuki. Just blah. I really hate that. I, I don't know how long it takes him to drop it, but I, I hope they drop that. I don't remember when we stop hearing that, but I hope it's fast. Looks like Steve Casey finally shaved that caterpillar off his lip. Great Muda has a pretty cool entrance here. You miss Casey. Casey charges him right off the start, and, and you miss him right in the face. I don't know if the referee's blind or, or if he wasn't looking, but it's clear Casey's covered in green mist, but the match continues. I don't know if you heard this, but I, I don't even know how I heard this in the passing commentary, but out of nowhere, both Jim Ross and Michael Hayes mentioned that Steve Casey's affectionately known as Chopper in the dressing room. <laughs> I did not hear that. I don't even want to know what that means. I, I, that's ex- that was exactly what I was thinking when I heard them say that. I got nothing to say. I'm just laughing. I can just imagine what that means. Oh, my God. Uh, Muda with the handspring elbow, missile drop kick, the plancha, a reverse in Zagiri, another handspring elbow on the floor up against the guardrail. I mean, Casey gets little offense, which I, I was fine with it. He got a little bit. That's all he needed. Muda ends it. They still haven't named it the moonsault. They refer to it here as the backflip, the blind 360. Match went too long for me with the rever- with all the nerve holds in the middle of the match. More time could have been easily shaved off here. That seems to be the story as we continue along. The Midnight's and SST didn't need to go 20 minutes. This match didn't need to go 8 minutes, and that causes trouble later on in the show. I like the production here. It wasn't anything fancy. I, I don't like the laser lights, the laser light nonsense during the entrances, but just overall, I, I, just, I thought that they're trying harder. And again, nothing fancy, but just I like the lighting on the wrestlers as they're coming down the aisle. I like they're adding the entrance music to everyone. Just a better overall presentation than what, what it was like a year before. Yeah, definitely. They upgraded it, and according to Meltzer, they had better entrances here. I didn't really care for the laser light show in no. 1989. That looked corny and hokey. But at least they're trying. A for effort, for sure. But not my thing. We get the Junkyard Dog over Butch Reed in about 10 minutes. And uh, no dog match should be going 10 minutes in 1989. Hell, most of them didn't even go 10 minutes in his prime. So just more crappy booking of time here. More poor time management is the story here so far the entire night. Jim Ross takes a lame shot at the WWF. He points out that they have a lot of fans in Connecticut. They're going to be coming touring Connecticut soon, especially the Stanford area. I just thought it was unnecessary, pointless. Nobody got that besides, the, you know, Vince and company. So I don't really know what the point of that was. Yeah, hard telling. Dog comes out here in his entrance with a Dixieland band. It was just overbooked, and it was awful. The whole band thing didn't work. The entrance, it was just a waste of time, and whatever they paid them, a waste of money as well. We could have easily given more time to matches further on down the card than do this entrance here for the dog. And then they go 10 minutes, and it's rest holds aplenty. Uh, both guys are blown up, but especially JYD. This was bad. They do a double clothesline spot, and I didn't even realize it was double clothesline because it took Dog like 10 seconds to take the bump. Yeah, I Reed, noticed that. I thought they were just gassed, and they just fell over, like, plopped down. It's pretty brutal. Reed does manage to hit his flying shoulder tech off the top ropes, but Dog lands near the ropes, gets his foot on the rope to stop the pin. Back up, and JYD ends up sending Reed into Matsuda, who was up on the apron, and JYD was supposed to schoolboy him, but Reed takes the bump, and Dog damn near cracks heads with him as he's trying to drop down for a schoolboy at the same time Reed's taking the bump, but Reed crashes into Matsuda and Dog drops down and makes the cover. Just unnecessary. This match should have went two minutes if you had to put it on the TV. Definitely didn't need that entrance either. This wasted a good 15 minutes of the show. Yeah, it was a complete waste of time. And for those of you who are trying to watch this show on the WWE Network, you might notice that the next three matches are cut off and uh, it was whittled down for time. It's interesting, one of the matches they cut for time when they could have cut this dog read match, for instance. 
The next three matches. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Turner released this on home video, but they did say that there's going to be a two and a half hour replay of this show that no one knew about either. So I wonder if they mixed them up and did the two and a half hour replay compared to the full three and a half hour show. Yeah, I mean, that could be it also. Very well could be right. It could just be that this was the replay version that they're using and they don't even realize it at Titan. Dick Murdoch versus Bob Orton. Match goes nine minutes, 33 seconds. Nothing happens for over the first seven minutes of the match. Orton finally goes for a superplex, but gets knocked away. Murdoch comes back, goes for his brain bruster. Gary Hart reaches in, trips Murdoch up. Orton falls on top. Hart holds down Murdoch's foot. You'll find this finish also at WrestleMania Five in the Warrior and Rude match. And I, I swear, Meltzer says somewhere in one of these observers that of the two finishes, that he liked this finish better than the Rude Warrior version. When Heenan's was so crisp and just perfectly done with Rude falling on top of Warrior and Warrior suplexing him back in the ring, Meanwhile here, Murdoch is so far into the ring trying to do the brain buster that Gary Hart has to literally crawl inside the ring, his entire body, all the way into the ring to trip Murdoch with the ref pretending he doesn't see Gary Hart crawling across the mat. Yeah, dude, this was terrible. And just more questionable timing here is this match goes nearly 10 minutes and it's just a snooze fest, and especially this deep in the show when they realize they're running over. And then I learn, according to The Observer, that this match was actually supposed to go 15 minutes. So they started slow, and that's why this match was slow-paced, because they were told they were going 15 minutes, and then out of nowhere, they were told to take it home, so that's when they sped things up in the last minute or two. You call this shaving time, you still give these guys nine and a half minutes? I mean, we're deep enough into the show now that you realize this match should not be going on at all, much less this long, when you need to get guys like Sting and Luger on the show. And I love Murdoch, but this was not good. No, this wasn't. And Tommy Young's just staring up in the sky while, while Gary Hart's climbing all the way into the ring. I don't even know if he hit his foot. He just kind of smacked his ankle and he fell down. Like Heenan grabbed Warrior's foot, held it down, and then hid under the apron to where the ref couldn't even see him. And Meltzer wants to say this one was better. Get the heck out of here. Get out. Yeah. Next match is uh, edited off for time. It's a world tag team title match. Unbelievably edited off the Clash of the Champions on the WWE Network. Features the Road Warriors defending against Dr. Death and Mike Rotunda with Kevin Sullivan at ringside. Match goes 11 minutes, 40 seconds. We see a fan sign at the beginning of the match. It says, uh, the Road Warriors are awesome. Spelled A-W-S-O-M-E. N-W-A, we wrestle. This is the N-W-A. We can't spell. (laughs) Doc and Rotunda are coming off a non-title win over the U.S. Tag Champs Gilbert and Steiner last week on TV. We get a spot in here where Animal presses Mike Rotunda. No big deal. Then he turns around and presses Dr. Death over his head. Just amazing. Varsity Club gets the heat on Animal. Dr. Death with a beer hug. Rotunda channeling his future IRS, locking in the abdominal stretch here. Steve Williams back in. Spine buster on Animal. Runs into a big Animal clothesline. Animal just nails Dr. Death, rips him with a clothesline. Hot tags the Hawk and Rotunda. And this is where things get interesting. So we get a hot tag and we get everybody in the ring. And, and if you're watching the match, if you if anybody out there can get footage of this match, Animal tosses Teddy Long, who is the referee, down to the mat. And they sell it like it was inadvertent. But it's very blatant that Animal's purposely taking Teddy Long and throwing him to the mat because he's in the way. But they sell it like it was supposed to be an accident or whatever. They hit the Doomsday device on Mike Rotunda. They do the safe bump because they respect Mike Rotunda and they don't like try to murder him off the shoulders of Hawk. Hawk actually takes the back bump with Rotunda. Hawk goes for the cover. Teddy Long won't make the count. He's standing in the corner selling his back from being thrown down by Animal. Out of nowhere, Dr. Death sneaks in with a schoolboy on Hawk. Teddy Long rushes over, runs down, makes an extremely fast three count, and the Varsity Club steal the tag team titles from the Road Warriors. What would you think of that? 
It's shocking, but I didn't like the finish. I know it leads to something down the road as far as Teddy Long goes, but I thought the finish was crap. But at the same time, it's talking animal. So if you want the belts off of them to kind of do a change, uh, because it's not going to be believable any other way unless they get screwed just because of how strong they are booked. It's kind of like the Bray Wyatt type deal now where he was so over or so dominant as a champion that you really pigeonhole yourself or paint yourself into a corner, kind of like The Undertaker as well. The finish was cheap, but, I mean, again, I don't know what else you could do. And that was my thoughts, too. I mean, if you're going to take the belts off the Road Warriors, this is about the best way you're going to get it done. Super screw job finish. Obviously leading for future things with Teddy Long. Interesting note here. You have to go back to 1985 and the AWA when the roadies lost the AWA tag team titles to Steve Regal and Jimmy Garvin. That was the last time the Road Warriors have done a job here. Four years is a long time, so I'm sure Rotunda and Williams were just happy they were able to walk out of there with the belts at all. And how about Mike Rotunda? Loses a belt on Saturday, wins a belt on Sunday. Things are going good for <laughs> Captain Mike. Oh, yeah, for now. We follow the match with the hot road warriors and Paul Ellering outside the ring. They're, they're visibly upset, and I would be too. Teddy Long just uh, screwed them out of the World Tag Team Championships, and obviously they're looking to come back after the Varsity Club for their belts and also come back after Teddy Long. And the final match edited off the WWE Network version is the Iron Sheik taking on Ranger Ross. So yes, you guys lose the Murdoch and Orton match, you lose the Sheik and Ranger Ross match, but you also lose the World Tag Team title match, and it's a title change, with the Road Warriors no less. So that was an interesting choice of a match being edited off. It just felt like it was lazy editing. It was like, hey, these matches go go in a row, one, two, three, let's just cut this whole area of the show out. And I bet that's why it was done that way. Probably. We're told Ranger Ross repels from the ceiling, but you barely see it because there's poor lighting and the poor guy's like in the pitch dark repelling from the ceiling during his entrance. Fast paced match because this match only goes like two minutes. Ranger with a bunch of martial arts type offense and on Sheiky just doesn't know how to sell it. At one point he takes a back fist and Sheik just stands there, takes a back fist and doesn't even move. And I don't think he was no selling to be like Road Warrior. I think he was just no selling because he had no idea what to do. And I forgot, like, the match kicks off with Sheik attacking Ranger. Ranger comes back, hits all his martial arts strikes, and then he goes and nails the combat kick for the finish, drops down to make the cover, and Rip Morgan, who is now the Iron Sheik's protege, runs in and causes the DQ. So not only do we get this match, we can't even get a finish. Sheik can't even do a job. Uh, terrible. We get Morgan and Sheik doing a beatdown on Ross until Junkyard Dog makes a save, and the less said about that, the better. I don't know about you, but if I was going to squeeze a two-minute match in here, I would have liked to have seen Sting go against Rip Morgan. Same here. Absolutely. And back to the network portion of the show. We get a Ric Flair promo with Bob Cottle. Flair in a suit. And this is like, what, 10 minutes before his match? So I'm thinking pre-tape, but I don't know. But yeah, I thought it was odd. Ric Flair's in a suit back here cutting a promo, and he's got to go out there and wrestle in 10 minutes. So it seemed kind of out of place based on what he was wearing. Yeah, I thought the same thing. This has to be pre-taped. U.S. Tag Team title match, rematch from the night before on Saturday night. We get the U.S. Tag Team champions, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner, with Missy Hyatt. Taking on Dan Spivey and Sullivan of the Varsity Club. This match is rushed for time. Match goes 3 minutes and 51 seconds. Match starts off with Dan Spivey just murdering Eddie Gilbert. Move after move, boss man slam, then a power bomb. He tries his tilt-a-whirl slam, but he, he tilt and whirls him the wrong way. It's an awkward slam. But anyways, he ties ties up Gilbert in the Tree of Woe. Sullivan delivers a knee in the corner. He misses the second one. But that was pretty poorly timed because Eddie Gilbert dropped down off the Tree of Woe several seconds before Sullivan even charged in. Like, Sullivan had all the time in the world to hold up from that move. But we get the hot tag to Rick Steiner. 
Steiner comes in over as hell. Impressive power slam on Dan Spivey. Rick mounts Spivey in the corner with some punches. Dan tries to carry him out into an inverted atomic drop. Rick drops down and counters into a really great looking belly to belly. Steiner covers, but everything breaks down into another four away melee. Steiner and Spivey up to their feet. They, t- they brawl over the ropes. They take a tumble over to the floor. The ref's not looking. Missy Hyde hands Eddie Gilbert her purse, which I had mentioned before, the Gucci purse. Gilbert unloads on Sullivan, gets the win with an inside cradle. The actual purse shot wasn't even shown on the TV, so you can thank who you mentioned before, Mr. Tommy Edwards. Uh, I think he needs to go along with George Scott. I think they replace him for the next show, the next big show, the pay-per-view. Yeah, I think Craig Leathers comes in pretty soon here. Yeah, he does. And uh, as I watched the finish of this match, I thought to myself, I don't even remember seeing Rick and Eddie ta- uh, Rick tag Eddie back in, or Sullivan for that matter. I don't remember either guy tagging back in. So I think both guys that, that were involved in the pinfall weren't even the legal men. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. I mean, it is like even like Doc, he just came out of nowhere. He wasn't even the legal guy in the Road Warriors match, and he just got the roll ups. So it, it didn't make any sense. Post match, we get a varsity club beat down on Gilbert and Steiner. Spivey with a frickin' baseball slide dropkick on Steiner on the apron. Spivey's moveset is all over the place. One minute, the guy can't even hit the ropes, and the next minute, you know, it's insecurities and baseball slides. I don't know what the hell's going on with that dude. Uh, Sullivan starts beating down Eddie Gilbert with a tape fist. Spivey nails him with a power bomb. Uh, we hear that Gilbert blades for no reason because it doesn't even make it onto TV. So they took a 10, 15 minute match and angle here, and we're basically forced to condense it down to four minutes, and then we're straight to commercial. Just poor timing. Really ruined this match, which I was having fun with, actually. And then also ruins it for Lex Luger and Sting, because both of their matches are also completely removed from the show due to time constraints at this point. Typical NWA. So at this point, we're informed that the television title and the United States title matches have been postponed for after the Ric Flair and Steamboat match due to time constraints. This is called Clash of the Champions, not Clash of the Iron Sheik versus Ranger Ross. So I think they picked the wrong matches to keep on the card. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. That's one of the comments I made to you earlier. How do you get your TV champion and your U.S. champion not be on a TV uh, Clash of the Champions special when they're booked to be on the show? Just, just stupid. We head into our main event, NWA World Champion Ricky Steamboat taking on Ric Flair in a two out of three falls match. Tommy Young, the referee, always a good call. Uh, Steamboat out to the ring with his family. I never realized how much he used them. Like, I remember them being there, but I just don't remember them being there this much. I mean, it's just sickening. We get Terry Funk on commentary, as promised. Michael Hayes is no longer out there. Another plus. They kept selling the time limit all weekend, and right here, it made you think that they might go to the distance because they just sold those 60 minutes so much. And the differences with match number two, uh, Flair's the chaser now. That's an obvious one. We go from a hot packed Chicago crowd to a nearly empty Superdome. So another big difference in crowd noise. Fall number one. Very good first fall. For a match going an hour, these guys are, aren't just resting and waiting. This is very much a modern version of the two out of three fall one hour type match. And there's some holds involved, which you would expect. There's some stalling involved. You'd also expect it, but it's in moderation and it's not over overtly obvious and, and it fits the pace of the match. Lots of action between the two in the first fall. The Chicago finish with Steamboat cradling the figure four, but Flair turns the cradle over here for the pin. So that was a great first fall finish here, 19 minutes, 35 seconds. What did you think about the first fall where they used the Chicago finish and threw everybody off and and put Flair back on top to get the win here? I liked it because it basically tells the story that Ric Flair is not resting on his laurels. He's been practicing and 
he can counter everything Steamboat throws at him. So uh, this was just a perfect way to tell that story. Okay, you got me with this last time, but I already got a fix for it this time. So you got to do something else to beat me this time. I liked it. And then we go to a quick promo for the Oak Ridge Boys appearing at the Music City Showdown from Nashville promo. And one more thing I wanted to touch on for that first fall. I thought it was the perfect amount of time. I thought it felt like 20 minutes was the perfect amount of time to have a really good match. It felt like its own match. You didn't need two more falls. It just felt like a really good match in itself. And basically we reset and start a whole new match here with fall number two. Lots of chops from Flair and Steamboat. Steamboat bumps to the floor. Flair uses the abdominal stretch into a cradle. Terry Funk refers to it as the Oklahoma crossbody ride. I had never heard that before. Flair is using some moves here that we don't normally see him use. I like that. Having to dig into his bag of tricks. Starts cheating. Using the ropes for leverage. First fall felt like a wrestling match, but this felt like a fight. Like a real competition. Like this fall mattered more. And it should, because now Steamboat's down a fall. And Flair's a fall away from regaining the belt. Steamer with the O'Connor roll. Flair kicks him off. Lots of chops again. Steamboat bumping around like a champ. Flair hits him with one chop, and Steamboat does a three or four foot jump into the air. Awesome bump. Great cardio by both guys. They're not slowing down. No surprise, but Flair goes to the top rope, gets superplexed by the dragon. This is where Ross puts over that Steamboat's working on Flair's back, and they, he notes that Ric Flair and his broken back from the plane crash in the, in the mid-70s. So they're telling a story here of Steamboat working Flair previously injured back. So that's the story of the second fall. Steamboat eventually goes into the double chicken wing submission. I had never seen Steamboat use this before, so it surprised me. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't really established. I'd never seen him use this before. But it does foreshadow the final fall, which makes sense. Flair submits here. That didn't set well with me at first because I had never really thought of that move as a submission finisher. But I think a pinfall here would have been a little better. But given the finish of the third fall, this makes tons of sense. I still didn't care for the move used, but I love the storytelling in this one. And this second fall went 15-26 with Steamboat getting the submission win. What did you think about Flair submitting? What did you think about the finish? I like this as well. I mean, it's just another story being told. I feel like like with the first fall, Flair countered the counter to Steamboat. And this time, Steamboat's showing Flair, like, okay, you, you got your submission. Hold, I got mine now. This is what I've been working on. And so he introduced a whole new move because he knew something different was going to have to be used in order to stop Ric Flair or beat Ric Flair twice in the same night. So... I understand where you're coming from, where it's not necessarily an established move or something he's ever done before, but to me, it just enhances the story a little bit, just because it is something we've never seen before, and it is something that I feel was necessary for him to do in order to win this match two times. And Fall Number 2 felt like another standalone match. It felt like its own match, which was a really great storytelling. A little shorter than Fall Number 1, but still just as equally as good, and just another story in and of itself. And we move on to Fall 3. We're 35 minutes now into the time limit. As uh, Flair clips Steamboat's leg very early into this fall, works the leg a lot in this fall. Last fall was Steamboat working Flair's back. This fall's Flair working Steamboat's leg. And for good reason, as we'll find out at the end of the fall. Figure four spot, Steamboat selling the figure four. They finally get to the ropes for the break. Ric Flair does the Flair flip over the top rope, but he connects with a top rope body block. Can you believe that one? Yeah, they actually hit it. And that was a near fall. The crowd was really hot for that. They thought Flair might get the win with that because he never hit that as a heel and he hits it here. I love this next spot, too. With the, he gets him in the, you know, you're about 50 minutes into the match, close to it, and he goes for the sleeper hold. Yeah. Uh, normally the sleeper hold's useless or just a little break, but this one is a perfect move to do just because, you know, he is tired. He's got, he's 50 minutes in. He's already had to win a match and he's had to 
deal with you for this long, like a sleeper hold at this point, you may catch them off guard. They may actually go out. And I think, too, like after this, like Flair got knocked to the floor. He broke in, went to the floor. I also like how Steamboat was kind of, he was so out of it or just, you know, just selling the fact that he's been wrestling for so long in this match that he doesn't really know what's going on. He was like walking around the ring trying to find out which side he went out at or couldn't find him. And that's when he came back in the ring and clipped him in the leg. So those little things that those guys did during this match just set it apart, just make it an unbelievable match. And that was, was a really good spot to do that late in the game. And you know it's great storytelling. When somebody can put a sleeper hold on someone 50 minutes into a match and it may, and you like it. Because I can watch mm-hmm. a 10-minute match and if somebody puts somebody to sleeper, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out until, until the holds broke. And here it just made sense. It was perfect sense. You're, you've been wrestling for 50 minutes. This guy's already spent locking the sleeper. It made perfect sense to me. I loved it. Great storytelling. And like you said, when that didn't work, what happens? Flair goes right back to the leg. Steamboat, though, uh, nails him with the enziguri here. And I, I like that too. But Flair right back to the leg again because Steamboat misses a top rope move and his legs hurt. Flair just keeps going back to it. And we got less than 10 minutes left in the time limit. You're thinking this match is going to a draw at this point because nobody's going 50. 55 minutes and we're going to get a finish just lots of back and forth in the last several minutes just amazing stuff and then flair gets pressed off the top we go and go into the next finish which steamboat hooks in the double arm chicken wing again looking to get a second submission hold on flair it worked the first time makes sense go for it again but steamboat's leg after being worked on the entire third fall gives out from the pain and they take a bump backwards but steamboat holds on to the chicken wing and has flair in sort of a back suplex type pinning position with the arms underhooked. And as the referee counts one, two, three, flair gets his foot on the bottom rope, but the referee, Tommy Young doesn't see it, but he calls for the finish. He calls for the win for steamboat and steamboat gets the win here. And I was okay with the double pin or the no pin with their feet under the ropes or whatever. Flair's foot on the rope, Steamboat's foot actually under the rope as well. But if Steamboat knew that he put his own foot under the bottom of the rope, why did he accept the finish anyway? I mean, being a family man and all, it makes no sense because you see, I don't know if Steamboat was supposed to do it. I don't know what was going on, but Steamboat forced his right foot to get underneath that bottom rope during the pinfall. So I don't know what was going on there. But other than that odd part of the match, this was like the anatomy of a match. Just perfect from top to bottom, every fall. All the stories told here. I agree. I think this match is better. Like the match itself, you don't look at anything else. Don't look at the crowd, the heat, anything else. You just look at the match in the ring. This one's by far, I think, the best one out of the three so far, or the two so far. Right. Um, just because when you give these two guys 55 minutes and go tell them to go paint their picture, and this is what they come up with, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's definitely one of the greatest matches of all time on for TV. It was a pleasure going back and watching it again. And it says a lot, I mean, you know, to their credit, that a 23-minute match, you would expect it to be more fast-paced, which it was a very up-tempo match, the first match that they had. You would think that it could possibly be the better match because you eliminate a lot of the, the downtime, which there wasn't a lot of downtime here. But there's a lot of Bret Hart Shawn Michaels matches that go 20, 25 minutes that I love a whole lot more than their Iron Man match. But I have to say here, these guys knew what to do with all 55 minutes and I was just happy that they went 55 minutes and they didn't go 59 minutes and 49 seconds or something ridiculous like that because that's so contrived and done too often where the, the finish happens in the last 10 seconds of the match. So I was happy that we went 55 minutes. Every minute was awesome. Just a really great match. And I don't remember a whole lot from the third one, so I look forward to watching their final of the trilogy. But yeah, this one definitely outdid the first one by far. I think 
Meltzer even mentioned like the heat from the Chicago give it a little bit of an edge just because the crowd was so hyped and it was where the title changed hands. But to me, this is the one. Just a completely different story than the first match. And for obvious reasons, three times the time to work with in the ring, three times the falls. Steamboat's now the champ, but this time it wasn't Flair trying to figure out a way to get the best of his challenger. It was Flair meeting the champion at his own game with a, a wrestling match for the ages, just giving him everything he had. And Funk was a good choice on commentary. I didn't want to hear Hayes on his own agenda during the match, so I liked that Terry Funk had no agenda here. He just called it. It made it different for me, and I was fine with that. I like Funk. Wrestle War 90 is one of my favorite pay-per-views from the NWA. And Punk's commentator on there, and he just sounds awesome on commentary. He obviously knows his stuff, but he has that calm, soothing voice that I enjoy listening to. That's why I like Magnum a lot. Definitely way better than hearing Hayes oversell everything. And we close the show with a backstage Ricky Steamboat promo, much like at Shinetown Rumble. Steamboat has no option but to acknowledge Ric Flair has fans out there because he does have quite a fan base. But he thanks everyone. What a classic good guy. He thanks his fans and Ric Flair's fans. Just too much. Steamer says he plans to move on. He's moving away from Ric Flair until he's informed and shown by video footage of Ric Flair getting his foot under the ropes during the replay. And at that point, you know, we learn that supposedly Flair is irate, going at it with Jim Hurd verbally. He's demanding an inquiry. And this will obviously set up match number three, the final match of the trilogy. Steamboat admits that Flair has an argument. How can you hide it? And that's basically the way we close the clash. Yeah. Not the best clash to me. The main event, like by itself, is better than almost any match that was ever on the clash. As an overall show, it wasn't very entertaining. Those first few matches were kind of hard to get through. Yeah, if you eliminate the entire rest of the show and you just watch that match, it just feels like you're watching a pay-per-view. That I mean, it was just a hell of a performance by both guys. And the matches left off the show. We end up seeing here later on it's Sting and Rip Morgan and Lex Luger and Jack Victory, and we'll get to that when they're aired on TV. Coming out of this show, it's clear Ric Flair is booking his own storylines. It's the only one besides the roadies that's been worth the crap, and it's masterful. Not only in the storytelling in the ring, great, but the entire story of why each match is taking place. Flair had such a tremendous booking mind, and you'll notice that when he comes to book later on in, the, in this year. It's just too bad he's admitted himself that he has ADHD and he just couldn't handle it long term. Just a great job by these guys. Just loved it. Unfortunately, that doesn't translate to ratings. Clash of the Champions 6 is rated the lowest rated clash in the history of these six Clash of the Champions shows. Coming off the lowest rated episode of World Championship Wrestling and the history of World Championship Wrestling. Somebody needs to go here. This clash did a 4.3, which translates to 2.1 million viewers. It peaked at 5.0 during a, the Flair Steamboat match. So you take that 4.3 and compare it to Clash number 1, which did a 5.8. You take the Flair Steamboat match, which peaked at 5.0, and the Sting Flair match peaked at 7.8. There's some issues here. And that's why George Scott and his logical thinking of, if we give these main event matches for free on TV, it'll kill the house shows. So let's not tell the fans they can see this for free. Maybe nobody will watch. And what happens next? Ladies and gentlemen, George Scott is finally fired. <laughs> Bye-bye. And what happens next is there's a booking committee that's formed in the form of Jim Ross, Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, Jim Hurd, Jim Barnett, who acts as the senior consultant. 
You know, Jim Barnett goes back a long time in the history of wrestling. He's one of the main, main proponents of the early promoters that really made wrestling what it would eventually become. He invented studio wrestling. He was involved in, in settling the Georgia War during that Gunkel era in the early 70s. He went to Australia, probably made the most money of any promotion in the history of wrestling to this date based on inflation. He was one of the early proponents of wrestling on TV. He owned the Detroit Territory before he sold it to the Sheik. He owned the Indianapolis Territory before he sold it to Dick the Bruiser. And then he went and worked for Vince McMahon after he, he played a major factor in getting the Georgia stocks sold to Vince so that Vince could take over the TBS show. So Jim Barnett, his lineage and being in this business is all over the blueprints of the history of professional wrestling. So he's here, but he's just collecting a paycheck at this point. And you'd have to think, even though everyone says booking committees don't work, that this still has to be better than George Scott. But I'm just wondering how quickly they can turn this around because it's not going to be an overnight thing. And even if they turn around the product overnight, they're not going to turn around their ratings overnight. That's going to take some work to get some of those fans back. And we also learned at this point the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette have given notice because of George Scott. They're sick of them and they're also having issues with their pay getting cut by more than 50% or, or at least 50%. And they're getting jobbed out by the SST left and right. But Meltzer reports that since George Scott was fired, they were able to talk Cornette and the Midnights into possibly returning. Cornette still wanted to take some time off so they could rejuvenate themselves. and But there was still the issue of the contract dispute because at this point, the Express and Cornette were making $225,000 a piece. It was a deal that Crockett purposely worked out with them before selling to Turner. And now the Turner organization wanting to drop all three men down to $100,000. That's a hell of a pay cut. And uh, it's more Lane and Eaton that don't want to take the cut. Cornette was fine with the cut. In fact, he said so in, in several interviews. But he was the only one every time he would go and speak for them to George Scott, or I'm sorry, uh, with Jim Hurd, Hurd would just keep upping Cornette's money. So every time Cornette came in, the Midnight's price would stay the same or maybe raise a little bit, but Cornette's money would keep going up. I guess Hurd thought Cornette was really coming in and going into business for himself, but Cornette kept telling him, I told you, I'll work for $100,000. I'm just trying to get these guys paid. So I thought that was kind of funny, just dealing with Jim Hurd like that. Yeah, so we lose George Scott, but now it's the Jim Hurd era. That's another story that we're easily going to dive into next. Luckily, Hurd stayed out of booking to some degree. He wasn't completely in charge like George Scott was. Nevertheless, the Midnights did want to take some time off TV, and they got that time. And I think they finished up here uh, around April 9th for a little bit. With George Scott gone, I think a lot of the booking changed. Music City Showdown, I'm sure the card changed. And who's the first casualty of George Scott being fired? Vince Young. They claim he was fired for refusing to do a job to Bob Orton. I just can't believe that. Like, who the F are you to refuse to do a job for Bob Orton? Good riddance. Now go do a job to everyone in the WWF, you tool. At least he was getting wins on TV. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Maybe they thought he was going to get pushed. Uh, new regime, buddy, means better do what they say. You're going to be out and deuces, buddy. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. This, here's this kid who's been, what, not even a year into the business. He did a little bit down in Alabama. He comes up and gets a, a job as a favor to father, Strongbow. George Scott gives him a little push on TV, and he's been in the business a year, and he's refusing to do a job to Bob Orton, a guy who's been in the year, uh, business for over 15 years. It's just crazy to even think this. Yeah, it's stupid. It's not like and, the Lex Luger thing out there looking like a million bucks and popping the crowd. And we learned that Teddy Long is obviously based on what we saw at the Clash of the Champions with the match with the Road Warriors and the Varsity Club. Teddy Long is out as a referee. He's going to be repackaged. Meltzer is not exactly sure as what at this point, but we do know that Teddy Long is working towards uh, moving into, obviously, what will become a managerial role. 
and hired in his place is Nick Patrick, which is a good choice. Patrick, of course, the son of the assassin, Jody Hamilton, who works in the office. So that makes sense that Patrick is brought in as a referee. Luckily, in this case, nepotism works. Patrick was a, a good referee, so I, I'm happy with that decision. Yeah, me too. It's nice to see him in that Sting Rotunda match. Another familiar face. And okay, we're going to wrap things up there for this week. And I'll break kayfabe here, break the fourth wall for a minute, and mention that this specific episode that we're recording right now, we're doing it late, late into the wee hours of the night. And Steve, I know you've got to be up for your shoot job here in about maybe four or five hours. Now, much like yourself, as a man with kids, I just want to let you know that I appreciate you taking this precious sleepy time to stay with us here on the grenade and power through this episode of Clash 6, a pivotal event for many reasons. It's been another fun one, and can't wait for Episode 7 to see the new direction of the NWA with George Scott out as Booker. Yeah, it's been quite the ride here tonight. Yeah, it's, it's early. I get to get up for work in about a few hours, but it's been fun. Good content and good shows to watch and get through. I'm excited as you are to see how the NWA turns around with George Scott out. So once again, Steve, thanks for being here this week, and I'm excited about the direction the NWA is headed in now, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts here next week on the next batch of shows we're going to watch, and thanks again for joining me. It's a pleasure, man. Can't wait to our next episode. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. So as we wrap things up with episode six, we've made it three months into 1989 and we're a quarter of the way down. Me and Steve have already been discussing where we're going to go next after the NW89, but that's still a ways off. The Grenade will return next week and we will tackle four more weeks of NWA TV with episode number seven. And that will take us through the end of April as we cover the weekends of April 8th through the 29th. And some really fun things there as we move away from the slow, methodical booking of George Scott and into the up-tempo, all-cylinders-firing style of the new booking committee. And believe me when I say it's like an entirely new promotion and you won't want to miss any episodes moving forward. We want to thank you all for listening, downloading, and subscribing to The Grenade as you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and just about everywhere else podcasts can be streamed. And remember to mark your calendars now and be sure to tell your friends the following week, October 5th. It's the 8th episode of The Grenade and we'll be doing our very first Twitter prize giveaway. It's absolutely free. All you have to do in order to participate in the random drawing is follow us on Twitter and we'd appreciate a retweet as well. It's that simple. Just head on over to Twitter and follow us at Rasslin' Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. It automatically enters you in a chance to win the free prize giveaway, and that prize, the very first giveaway feature, an autographed 1989 promo pick of the Total Package Lex Luger. We do have images up on Twitter account if you'd like to take a look. But it's just that simple. Follow us at Rasslin' Grenade for your chance of becoming the very first prize winner at the Grenade. And please remember to retweet our giveaways information, because the more followers we get, the more prizes we can give away. It's a win-win for everyone. We also invite you to stop over and visit all the good people at the Retro Network, which you can do by simply going to theretronetwork.com. In one of the latest installments of the Wayback Wednesday, Eric goes back to the week of September 16th, 1983, as retreated to a playlist of 40 of the most popular songs of that time. Everything from Maniac to The Safety Dance, Every Breath You Take by The Police to Sweet Dreams by The Eurythmics, from Michael Jackson to Taco. Even Frank Stallone's Far From Over cracks the top 15, and for wrestling fans, you'll know this as the original Starcade instrumental. How's that for a tie-in to our show? Just more proof that you can find a little wrestling in everything. Including this week's sequel quest, where host Jeremy invited the fellows from the House Show podcast to stop by as the two sides battle it out while they both pitch sequels to the movies No Holds Barred and Ready to Rumble. And even though The Grenade wasn't invited to talk the long-awaited sequel to the Body Slam movie or the pilot reboot for Tag Team, it's okay, we hold no grudge. 
We know we're the new kids in town, and I greatly encourage everyone to go check that show out right now on the Retro Network. And as I click on their site, I do see the latest edition of Bracket Madness has been added as well. And I had a lot of fun participating in the latest episode as Jason, myself, and several others from the Retro Network, Gary, Stacy, and Old School 80s Tim, pick some of our favorite 80s cartoons and then proceed to seed them into a tournament bracket and eliminate them by majority vote until we come up with one decisive winner. What was the greatest cartoon in the 1980s? Stop over to the Retro Network, click on Bracket Madness 80s Cartoons, give it a listen, and find out for yourself. If you'd like to contribute to the Retro Network or you simply want to keep updated on their latest going-ons over there, you can follow Jason and the gang on Twitter at TRN Social. And that about wraps it up this week for us, so make sure to follow us on Twitter for all the latest news, GIFs, and other fun things we post, and of course your chance to win free prizes. And we'll be back next week with another four weeks of NWA TV. That's the entire month of April 89, all in one show. So until then, I'm Ray Russell, and for co-host Stephen Ekstat, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin, we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there!